Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Here We Are podcast. I am at the Psychedelic Neuroscience Symposium 2019, and my name is Shane Moss. I am stand-up comedian, psychedelic advocate, experimenter, enthusiast, and host of this science podcast. Here we are. Usually, each week, I interview one person about their expertise as I travel around this great country and sometimes world of ours. Today, we have a very, very special episode. It's going to be three hours long, and we're going to have nine different researchers all studying different aspects of the psychedelic world and current psychedelic research and so we're going to split them up into three hours the first hour we're going to hear three different guests talking about psychedelic therapy in the second hour we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects dmt and in the third hour we're going to be talking about psychedelics and neuroscience so i hope you're up for it i hope i'm up for it i've never done a three-hour podcast before i've never interviewed nine people in a row or at once before and so i'm very very excited to do this and it's one of my favorite subjects to explore and interview people about so i'm really looking forward to it and enjoy today's show are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. All right, so this is the first section. This is psychedelic therapy section and uh in the first so i'm just going to have each of my guests kind of go around and introduce themselves and then and talk a little bit about what they're doing at the conference and then we're going to get more of a conversation started and get the ball rolling that way we'll see i've never done this before like this this is very exciting so first we have nick denemy Hey, how you doing, Shane? Thank you for having me. I'm Nick Denemy. I'm a PhD student in pharmacology here at the University of Michigan, uh, who hosted the symposium uh, that brought us all together. Uh, and I'm absolutely stoked to, to be here with you. So did you present at the symposium as well? I did, yeah. So um, I do work, uh, basically molecular pharmacology work on psychoactive substances. Uh, and I work a little bit in different areas. But what I presented on today was uh, a historical uh, reminder of how important psychedelics have been in our understanding of, of neuroscience uh, and building our understandings of serotonin, actually. So I gave a very specific story about how LSD was extremely important in the mid-50s to uh, the researchers that discovered serotonin and understanding how it uh, affects behavior. Fantastic. And then we have Alan Davis with us. Alan, why don't you uh, tell the people what you do? Yes, yeah, so I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of social work at uh, The Ohio State University. And I'm also an adjunct assistant professor at Johns Hopkins, where I've worked on clinical trials for using psilocybin as an adjunct to therapy for people with major depressive disorder. Mm. And I have return guest, a good friend of mine, 
famous in the in the psychedelic circles and outside of them um rick doblin is back on on the show uh rick for the people that that don't know who you are i don't know why they're listening to this podcast that seems crazy to me but give them a, a, a brief intro and then uh, and then we'll catch up a little bit okay i'll tell you a funny story from burning man i'll start out with so oh, i had to give a talk at, at burning man and there's about 100 people there and so I was introduced by someone who said, is there anybody that doesn't know who Rick Doblin is? And nobody raised their hand. And then I raised my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're all on that journey. Yes, we all still are. So I um, founded and am executive director of the MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And my um, goal is to make MDMA into a prescription medicine and other things too. And my main job is to um, ask government for permission and people for money. Nice. Well, let's for <laughs> for people that are uh, well. One, you you and I travel about the same amount. Yeah. I'm in. I'm up to about three cities a week now. What are you? Well, you're ahead you of me. You're yeah? ahead of me. Really? I have to get home every Wednesday night to take out the garbage. Yeah, I know. That's one of my favorite. That's adorable uh, uh, to, to help out around the house. Um, but you're always in the air every time I a see lot. you. you yeah, you've more flown so. somewhere. As soon as you're done with this, you're flying somewhere. I've never yeah. I've never ran into you where you haven't just came from somewhere or, or you're leaving. You're, you're a very busy man. Give people a quick update for the listeners of the show that have tuned into past episodes the last episode that we had you on you you had applied for breakthrough status with the fda yeah that was two years ago so um we have breakthrough therapy status we have Mm -hmm. special protocol agreement letter which is even more important but people don't really know what it means what it means is that we've negotiated everything about phase three the design of the protocol and all the associated information and we've come to agreement with FDA on that. And so they are legally bound to approve MDMA for PTSD if we get statistically significant evidence of efficacy from this design. And they've agreed on the statistical analysis plan and everything. Um, and the other condition is that there's no new safety problems. And in that case, we're really fortunate that MDMA has been used by tens of millions of people for decades and decades and decades. So we have an excellent idea of the safety profile, as does the FDA. Same for psilocybin and cannabis as well. So where we're at right now is we are within a week or a month or so of getting approval for expanded access. So what that means is for treatment-resistant PTSD, while we're doing phase three, we can also have in parallel a protocol for people legally to get access to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. But there's two conditions. They have to accept the risk because it's not fully approved but it's the same risk as somebody volunteering to be in the study, but they also have to pay for it. So we're actually going to be setting up psychedelic therapy clinics for MDMA, specifically for treatment-resistant PTSD. And a lot of these clinics are actually, some of them um, doing ketamine now for depression. So this is the sort of the birth of the future development of psychedelic clinics. Uh, this is uh, this is very exciting, <laughs> Nick. Uh, you you uh, were doing some work with uh, kind of the history of psychedelic science, right? So put this in context of of uh, where we came from and how um, how big of a deal this is. Yeah, this is a huge deal, and I actually was talking about some of the history of ketamine too. But I mean, um, obviously, you know, psychedelics were very popular in the '60s, uh, and there was a lot of progress happening. Uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of dark side. 
activities going on with the government and the work that they were doing, weaponizing it. And, you know, this is no new news to psychiatrists that these, you know, compounds are effective and, and, and useful. Uh, and then, you know, to see, you know, all the work that Rick's done and MAPS has done and everybody, you know, that the decades of, of struggle and what they went through to, to kind of bring us out of the, um, the dead zone of research and progress. It's, it's really beautiful. You know, it's, it was wonderful to see that today. So you got like a nice, like formal suit and tie. You got the <laughs> so glasses. You got actually the-, the last time I was at psychedelic science, um, I went to a festival on bicycle day. So oh. it was, it was the, around the same time as bicycle day. And so I landed in San Francisco and one of my friends was at an, uh, an art institute out there and I said, Hey, let's, you know, let's go, uh, enjoy bicycle day and we'll go to a, an art festival and uh, this vest you know was really caught my eye somebody was making like custom clothing and I thought it was beautiful so. uh, it is nice so, well wow. it's nice you can kind of button up the jacket too right. if the cops pull you exactly. over and then exactly. you, and then you, know, you take it off at the festival that's, hide under the velvet yeah. that's very very <laughs> snaky yeah. um, all right so uh, Alan it, can you talk about some of the social work aspect of, of all of these topics Certainly. Well, I'm new to the uh, social work uh, profession as a as a active contributor, but my, my role as psychologist and therapist in, in psychedelic uh, treatment, what I've seen in the research is that we have a long way to go in terms of advocacy for the people who really need access to these medications. And one of the great things about being in a college of social work and, and starting to connect with that profession is that social workers are primed from their training all the way through their activism and their clinical work to kind of be at the forefront of changing the dialogue dialogue about how and in what ways culture and legislators talk about these medicines. And so I'm really excited to engage that profession in that way. Hmm. Rick, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of homeless veterans out there and that sort of thing mm-hmm. suffering from uh, yeah. from PTSD. And you talked about expanded access where people are able to pay. What mm-hmm. kind of um, resources do you see in the future for for people that need the, uh, the financial help to get this kind of treatment? Well, right now we're about um, 25% enrolled in our phase three studies. So that means we've enrolled around 55 people out of 200, and it'll take us till the end of 2021, we think, to present the data to FDA. At that point, we hope that insurance companies will cover it. And so we're gathering all sorts of health economic data and trying to make the case that even though it's currently um, more money up front because it's a lot of therapy time condensed with eight hour MDMA sessions and hour and a half instead of, you know, 60 minute sessions. It's more expensive at the beginning, but it saves money over the long run and it actually helps people a lot better and they can return to families and work and career. So we have to make the affirmative case with the insurance companies and we'll be trying our best to do that. Also, um, we're in negotiations or discussions with the VA starting in 1990. Um, Not making much progress, but we're close now to having some studies uh, potentially approved for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD taking inside the VA. And for these homeless vets that you talk about, there's um, over a million, as of September 2019, a million 36,000 veterans receiving disability payments for PTSD. And these are annual payments. Most of these are young people. It's going to be for the next 30, 40 years. And a lot of them would like to participate in society. They're just burdened by the trauma. So what we're hoping is that the VA will eventually decide that it makes sense for them to pay for 
these people to try MDMA therapy. And also moving into the Department of Defense. The idea is that we wanna work with people closer to the trauma, and that means also before they get um, permanently discharged and uh, classified as PTSD and on disability payments. Mm-hmm. You know, in that intervening time, we want to work with them. Similarly, the FDA is requiring us to work with adolescents with PTSD if we succeed in adults. So it's the same idea of trying to get closer to the trauma and treat people as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, Alan, there's so my my last serious relationship was with a, a lady who was a care coordinator had to do, had to do a lot of advocacy for um uh, for people in all a myriad of you know a very uh, dark and troubling positions and and even getting things like people people with uh um you know say uh a morbidly obese person trying to get them special shoes so that they're less likely to fall so that they're less likely to hurt themselves so that it's less likely that you need to like take a crane to open up their roof to get and this is potentially saving all sorts of money but i i think it's even this is just you know to get a pair of shoes was a difficult thing to be like hey this 80 dollar pair of shoes might save the government uh, you know she her focus was the the highest um users of medicare and medicaid and um and this for this like less than hundred dollar investment you could potentially be saving tens of thousands of dollars and this was a difficult thing for her to do it it it, how how do you see it in terms of and anyone can contribute that it you know making the case for i certainly see it do you you compare the giving um you know someone disability for 40 years compared to one um mdma treatment but but they look at that short you know the short-sightedness of seeing that initial number and is this going to work how do you um what kind of uh um what, what kind of barriers do you see having to push through I think one of the challenges that we have as the human race in general is a delayed gratification. <laughs> and we usually, unfortunately, especially in like insurance company circles and, and other, um, other legislative circles, you know, they see what's right in front of them. And I think that'll be a little bit of a hurdle, but hopefully with the dialogue that MAPS is having with insurance companies and other stakeholders and that other people are having in their local communities to try to talk to clinics that might be able to provide these kinds of services, either at a lower or, or less cost, um, that there can be, um, hopefully, those barriers can be overcome would there be a way of tracking say how how many resources a a person was using in in terms of their benefits that they were getting before a treatment and then afterwards when they become less reliant on that is that something that can be oh yeah and in fact there's um a lot of information on healthcare utilization that can be gathered about people before they were treated and after they were treated. The problem with that is that you need to really do a longer term follow up because those things, you know, show up, you get an anxiety related problem a year later, or you have a panic reaction, you go to the emergency room, or you have, you know, stress related problems. It takes a while to really gather the long term benefits, mm-hmm. but there's a bunch of papers already in the literature, the scientific literature about the excessive healthcare utilization of PTSD patients in all different areas. So we've got a pretty good case that we can make already about the economical costs of it. And at the same time, um, the data that we have from phase two, it's only from 100 and 
um, seven people. So we really need our phase three data to really do outcomes and suggest, you know, how much benefit will really come from it. Mm. So we're not quite in the position of having all the data to make the arguments that we need to make. But I think it um, will not be that hard, actually, for us to make the economic case. Mm. So uh, as we're moving, there's there's ketamine, um, uh, legal and clinical use already, hopefully moving into MDMA. And uh, and Nick, you have some research on some novel tryptamines and, and new um, potential um, drugs and treatments coming out. Yeah, what do so, you th- what do you see in terms of the future of that expanding? Yeah. So there's a lot of compounds um, out there that we haven't really explored yet. Um, I talked a little bit about Alexander Shogun, and he made you know a plethora of compounds that uh, could be explored for potential therapeutic use. Um, Alan actually talked uh, a little bit about using rapid-acting act, rapid tryptamines, um, which I think is a really interesting uh, field that's been completely unexplored. Um, and I would like to actually ask you some questions about the 5-MeO uh, work that you were talking about, because I do not understand how anything can be integrated uh, from that experience. <laughs> um, but... One thing that I'm actually currently working on is a repurposing of um, an older drug that's actually a, a psychedelic phenethylamine, uh, and I actually research epilepsy on a severe pediatric epilepsy, and the serotonergic drugs uh, that activate the 5-HT2A receptors seem to be working for this epilepsy, um, and it's very strange, and the mechanism is not fully understood, um, but that's actually what I'm currently working on for my thesis. Hmm. Uh, I'm working on a compound called fenfluramine. Uh, and some other compounds that actually can act um, in higher dosages like psychedelics that were repurposed um, for epilepsy. So it's a very strange uh, take on the take on things. So Alan uh, got brought up five <laughs> five MAO DMT seems uh, to get brought up. Uh, let, let's let's talk about it. It's one, it's one of the few psychedelics I've never done. Uh, and and does that mean you've never done yet? <laughs> I've, never, I've never done yet. I, I was uh, I was meaning to. There, it's it, I've come across it a few times. It's just never felt quite right. Well, you know the thing that's that's scared me the most is everyone's like because I've done a fair amount of DMT, a spirit molecule, or whatever you see these things, these entities, these spirits, whatever. I have different takes on what it might be about, but um, but everyone with a five ME first off, here's what happens. I'll I'll, I'll do a, I'll do a comedy show about psych. Alex, I, I had a tour for a while. I sometimes um, do the show and uh, dust it off, and and it's it's always uh, fun to um, perform great. to the yeah. to the psychedelic community. Rick's seen it a few times, and and I always have a bunch of uh, you know. Usually, most rooms that I walk into, I am the biggest psychonaut in the room. Except when I do my show, there's often people that have more experience than I have, and people will come up to me afterwards and they'll be like, "Have you done the five meo DMT?" And I'm like, "No, just a regular old NN." And then they're like, "Oh, it's like the next level." And I'm like, "The next level? I can't imagine much." Much anything more more intense than regular old man pa DMT, um, but but then other people tell me it's just a very different experience altogether. It's very emotionally driven and, and less kind of um, visual. And then um, and then the other the main thing that scared the next level. I'm, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I'm a bit of an adventurer. So the next level, I'm like, well, I do want to see the next level. But then <laughs> uh, but then when people are like, oh, it's like a direct connection 
to God or whatever. You hear a lot of people reporting that, and I'm like, uh, no thanks. I, <laughs> most, most people are really excited, like, I want to meet God. I'm like, meh, <laughs> not, not into it. So, so tell people about, because we've never actually talked about 5MEO on the show before, and you know, people are fascinated these days. It's yes. the new thing everyone's buzzing about. Yes. Well, first of all, I'd just like to compliment you on your restraint of knowing when it's the right time for yourself. <laughs> uh, that's something that unfortunately a lot of people don't have, especially because it's become so much a part of like the the, the myth of the next level of, of an experience. And uh, actually, you know, pretty regularly I get contacted by people who have had those kinds of experiences, but they didn't say no and did it anyway, even though they didn't feel comfortable. And if I had some really challenging experiences because of that, um, luckily, you know, people get connected to support that they need. Need, but um, it is a very powerful molecule, and you know, regardless of whether it's connecting to God or to Source, which is often um, spoken in, in the studies that we've done, uh, it does seem to uh, be less visual than NNDMT in mm-hmm. terms of the subjective effects. And uh, I do think that there is going to be a place for um, short-acting tryptamines uh, in our psychedelic medicine panacea, and I think that uh, in part because of some of the cost barriers to the the lengthy treatments that psilocybin and MDA, MDMA bring about, uh, and so hopefully. You know, it also opens up some novel uh, opportunities to study things like um, uh, acute suicidality in an emergency department, right? If someone is really struggling and needs immediate help, you know, you start to see the 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 scope of psychedelic medicine expanding into settings that I don't think we traditionally have been thinking about so far. Um, mm-hmm. So that's some of the interest there. Yeah, I'll just say there's yeah. a, an attempt that um, at Yale they've talked about uh, giving people ketamine. And then pot, when they come suicidal into the emergency room, they still stabilize them overnight and or they can give them ketamine the next day. And then also comparing that to MDMA, and it would be good to compare that to psilocybin. And, yeah. to, and then we'll just give several people just all three and just see how they do <laughs> compared to the other. Yeah. Well, I've been dabbling a bit in ketamine lately. And what I what I like about it is that it doesn't, for me, come along with any of the anxiety that a lot of psychedelics would on the on the normal upswing, whereas uh, 5-MEO seems like maybe just the opposite kind of a, an experience. I know NN for me is like the first two minutes are about the most intense two minutes that that a person can experience. And, uh, you know, I've been I've been in outside of outside of psychedelics. I've been just, you know, uh, rock climbing and other things been in very like near death experiences, uh, driving any anything else. And none of them have compared to the intensity of the first couple minutes of a of a DMT trip. Well, and just imagine if that couple minutes was condensed into a couple seconds and how how ripe that moment would be for having a challenge that comes up. Mm. And I think that uh, there's such, uh, because of the potency, uh, because it's more potent than NNDMT, uh, there's a huge risk in misdosing people. And so what's happening a lot that I hear about in some circles around the world that are, that are providing this substance, that they're not paying attention to dosing, they're not paying attention to the individual or really preparing them adequately for the experience and where there isn't really a lot of integration offered after. And I think that it's even more critical with something that's so powerful and so quick acting uh, that we don't traumatize people in their psychedelic experience. And unfortunately, I think that's one of the risks of 5-MeO-DMT. I've heard um, another risk, almost the opposite. One woman told me that she thought it was so beautiful, this place that she went to, that she didn't want to come back. And Uh, so she came back and felt that she was depressed for a long time Yeah, and had a hard time coping. I get that. 
I've been there. I mean, so Alan, Alan raised the concern of, of how do you integrate an experience like that? In many cases, is, is some, so before I started doing my show and, and was uh, lucky enough to meet all these fantastic researchers doing, doing things on the, on the up and up, I, you know, I had 20 years of just uh, mostly just doing psychedelics by myself. I stumbled upon some, you know, basic practices that seemed to work well for me and using it as a meditative aid and that sort of thing. But, um, but in terms of like, in terms of integration, I feel like you can do MDMA or mushrooms and like go to a concert and we, and like not even ever hear the word integration or know that it's important and kind of forget about the experience. It's where a lot of people miss out. Whereas I think that with, uh, with something like, in my experience of DMT, yeah, it's short, it's intense, but like I can't stop myself from having to integrate it for a one, five, ten minute long experience. And I'm going to be thinking about DMT at least a couple times a day for the next month, if not longer. And I, I mean, I have, I, I haven't had a breakthrough DMT experience in, in two years, and I feel like I'm still integrating some of the experiences that I had. And that's absolutely what we hear with the 5-MeO-DMT research that we've done is that people report uh, that it's not really an option. Like the the, the alternative is that things like feeling down or depressed or, or struggling really to make sense of this really powerful experience. And so it really uh, requires someone to play more of an active role, I think, in the integration process. Mm. Uh, do you have... Um an opportunity for researchers to volunteer as subjects. <laughs> Hopefully soon in the future. That'd be great. But not, but not yet. Uh, there's nothing yet. We've been um, with the team at Hopkins. We've, uh, we've written a couple of protocols that we would love to uh, be working on with 5-MeO DMT, really uh-huh. to set some kind of basic, you know, safety data and healthy human volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as long as someone met the healthy uh, human volunteer category, I think that would be an opportunity. Okay, Cause you know, I, re- I read a book one time. It was called they went first. Uh-huh. And it was about doctors yeah. who did their own experiments on themselves yeah. because nobody else would take the risk, yeah. but they did it to learn what they were doing. Yeah. I feel uh, like yeah. we're missing out in our current days of <laughs> prohibition. <laughs> Rick has one of the strangest employee training practices <laughs> on earth. I mean, I do. No, I go back and forth with this, whether this is my own ego or arrogance or, or whatever, because I've certainly done, you know, I've, I've, I've used psychedelics in, in reckless ways a number of times as well. But the idea to me of having psychedelic assist- assisted therapists with anything like psilocybin, whatever, that hasn't had the experience themselves, that just seems crazy to me. I, I don't even I don't even get how you could do it without having experienced a little bit of that uh, yourself. Do you do you think that that's that is going to be a little bit of, of the future? Well, I think that we do have FDA permission to give MDMA to therapists as mm-hmm. part of their training. And I think the um, decision has been made by um, Compass and I believe USONA that they would concentrate on um, supervising their therapists working with more patients as contracted to our approach to doing that with one patient and then also giving people um, the opportunity to be a patient themselves with the therapeutic method we're trying to teach them delivered to them. I think that does enhance their ability to um, deliver the therapy. For MDMA, there's 
about um, eight-hour sessions, about a half the time people are listening to music, the patients are listening to music, they're not talking to the therapist. Mm-hmm. The other time they're engaged in dialogue. And so the therapists have to really be tuned in to what's going on with this person and when do they check in, when do they see how they're doing, how's their body language, are they open? You know, and I think you have a much more um, intuitive feel for where the patients are at if you've been there yourself. Mm-hmm. And I and, just want if I could add to that, I would say that I think it's one question in a prohibition world. I think it'll be a different question in a post-prohibition world, hopefully, uh, for providers to just not have to worry about whatever legal ramifications could come from that. Like in a approved research study, there are none. But outside of that, it's very difficult, I think, for most therapists to be open about that if it's mm-hmm. not been in approved or sanctioned or legal context. Um, but this also applies, it's not unique to psychedelic therapy. You know, one of the challenges I had as a, a substance uh, use counselor when I worked in addiction treatment was uh, in individuals coming to treatment wanting to know if their therapist had had an addiction. And I felt very strongly that it was not a requirement of therapists to have had an addiction in order to help someone with theirs. Mm-hmm. Now, does that apply explicitly to psychedelics? I don't know. I think there's maybe some importance of people having some experience with an altered state. Um, but whether or not it's with that specific substance or whether or not it's that specific experience in a therapeutic setting, I don't know. I just had a question. So do you... Um collect feedback or get data um, from the patients on how they feel about their therapist or, you know, how their experience was. It would be interesting to see if there was a correlation we, between... We do have a questionnaire at the very end yeah. that asks people about what, all aspects of what did they like being in a protocol, what did they think about that, what did, you yeah, know, we do gather that. It would be interesting to yeah. see, you know, if you could look... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no I was just going to to Alan's point that... Um, I think people can do a really good job being a therapist for somebody if they've never done the drug themselves. Mm -hmm. What I think is they would do a better job if they had done it. I don't want to say that they couldn't do a good job, but if they had the experience of psilocybin or MDMA, I think they would do an even better job. It's just (laughs) like, even here's a very silly example. I gave someone DMT recently and it was their first time and they didn't, they had like close to a breakthrough experience and they were describing what they were experiencing and I was like oh that's what most people would call the waiting room which is like very close to a breakthrough in in the space and here's what my waiting room looks like and I described it and I know what the feeling uh, feels like on uh, because it's also you know there's uh, in, in one day with MRIs and everything, maybe we'll be able to record these experiences and we'll even have a, a video representation and maybe even audio representation, but you'll still be missing a lot of the emotional aspect, which is such a huge part of of the story. And I don't know, it, it just, it, it feels like it would be easier. Not, I, I mean, I don't know if the, if the future means that every every doctor and therapist needs to have tried every drug on the planet to to, uh, to work with people. There's there's obviously um, other extreme takes on that as well. But uh, Nick, what what's kind of the history of early on in in um, the use where because I, I know that in the 40s and 50s when they were using LSD assisted. Uh, yeah, I think it was very common and, and it was encouraged for, you know, a lot of psychiatrists to, to take these drugs. And mm-hmm. so they really understood the experience. So actually, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I was discussing, you know, the man who coined uh, psychedelic Humphrey Osmond, and he talks about his first mescaline experience being extremely important to really uh, giving him insight into what it was like to be mentally ill and to understand, you know, he had no concept of what these people were going through and his patients were going through until he took mescaline. He's like, I, I understand, you know, what it's like to have in these endogenous hallucinations. And it gave him serious sympathy and, and insight into, you know, his patients. And it really transformed his uh, view of what they were going through. Hmm. So, 
So what about um, in, in terms of uh, like, uh, you know, people eventually being able to open up about these things and these experiences? Mm-hmm. What about, uh, you know, there, there's the, it's great. The social work, uh, PTSD, all of that great stuff. The um, uh, helping uh, helping people with a myriad of all sorts of mental health problems and and that's all terrific but also psychedelics can be fun sometimes <laughs> and and this is something that that i feel like uh, you know we're not really supposed to talk about and there's some some stigma involved with with fun like yeah. they're just wait they're just using those for fun like well what's wrong with fun necessarily? Well, we sometimes have fun in research settings we just had people in a salvinorin a or salvia study come in and do salvia and our you know healthy individuals so just we could look at their brains under uh fmri and see what was going on and you know i think there's a space for that i know, mean i imagine not not related to drugs in any way you go into a therapist's office mm. or even you're about to get surgery and you're talking with your doctor and you have a couple laughs along along the way like no one's like hey we aren't supposed to be laughing right now <laughs> you know we we, we recognize um, the value in those uh, Well, I think the concern about fun, I, I mean, I think um, I prefer to call it like celebratory use, and that's what we're also talking about post-prohibition uh, world. But the concern is that if you only want to have fun, that's your goal, and something difficult comes up, right. and then you sort of try to stuff it back down, you could end your, up making yourself worse. Right. So I think it's okay to have a great focus on fun or celebration, right. but to have... <clears throat> a bit of a willingness and have someone there maybe that can help you if things get more serious. Sometimes if you just pay attention to these serious thoughts, they can just run through you in minutes and you've learned and you've processed. It's not necessarily you get stuck for hours, but you have to be willing to, I think, explore both ranges of emotions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're at a festival or something and then you start talking, thinking about your past relationships or some traumatic thing that happened to you as a, as a child and, Trying to push that away and be like, yeah. but I'm trying to listen to Spongle <laughs> right now. I don't want to think about my my abusive father or whatever. But but you, the, that's all just part of the yeah. the whole range of the experience. And that's where I really see the advocacy is playing a major role in in helping communities and families and the broader culture understand a language and understand the experience as best they can to support those types of events when and if they occur. So that way, in a post prohibition world, when people are having fun and these things come up they can go to their parents or they can go to their friends and they'll have some common terminology and understanding and how to support that experience. Yeah, and also at festivals, we've got um, what we call the Zendo Project. It's psychedelic harm reduction. So for people that have a difficult psychedelic experiences, we have teams of um, therapists, just experienced peers um, that will sit with people and help them process for as long as they need. So at Burning Man, for example, we had 400 volunteers and we were there for seven days, days and nights, and we had um, over 500 people come for support. And so if you have a festival where people are basically there to, you know, to have fun, to connect, but there's also opportunities for them if it does get um, more profound in certain ways that they have places that they can go to support. So both their friends, but also that it be considered to be part of a festival organizer's responsibility to take care of people's physical health and their mental health too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that from my own experience, having having done actually 
usually, like I said, just by myself as a meditative aid, but having had some experiences, it's actually not my favorite experience to be at a festival or something and be on a mind altering substance. Some people just love it, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily for me. But one of the benefits that I have been, have gotten from being in a social setting like that is often exploring some of my, um, uh, you know, social patterns that I have. I was a very shy, awkward kid growing up. And so a lot of times, you know, I'm on MDMA and in, uh, in uh, or something like that in a, in a social setting, and I'll have these kind of past memories of you know some awkward exchange in third grade or something like that that maybe led to some cascade of experience that made me um, you know made it hard for me to approach strangers or something like that. So so there's there are a lot of ways to be social and be working on yourself in at the same time. And I think, uh, I, I think it's, it's, um, I, I, it's almost like it's, it's broke up into two different worlds right now where people are like, oh, we're just having fun. And those people aren't necessarily being made aware that, that the troubling things that can, can come up. And then there's the clinical setting where we're historically maybe a little more toward the sterile side and, and a little more focused on trauma and like, oh, also it's okay to laugh in, in this. And, and so hopefully in the future we'll have a more complete picture. Although actually if you um, were to review the videotapes of the therapy sessions <laughs> with, uh, I'm sure with psilocybin <laughs> and also with MDMA, there's a lot of laughter. I a mean, lot. I think that's a big part of the therapeutic process. Um, and I think also with fun, people don't really assume it's therapeutic, but it can be incredibly therapeutic and recreate yourself and be healing. And Absolutely. Yeah. As, as a therapist, part of the thing that I've loved in the psilocybin sessions is, is laughing with people who haven't laughed in years and just like, yeah, laughing harder than ever. It's, it's so beautiful and um, healing. I, I, I do have a question for you that Alan is, is where do we think that these short acting, um, DMT and five MEO DMT, where will they be used? Because um, Stan Groff, who's you know taught a lot of us about LSD psychotherapy, has talked about how there's value in having a longer experience. You have more time to confront things, more time to kind of have it go away, come back, and you gather your strength. And so there's a lot of value in longer too. And so I, I'm just, uh, I, I guess I see them more as like inspirational tools, um, but, but maybe they could also break a cycle of um, depression more so even than psilocybin? Do you think that's possible or do you think it's more? I think it's possible. I mean, obviously I don't know empirically whether that's true, but I do think that the future will provide an environment where these medicines can work in conjunction with each other at different times in people's lives. You know, there's a lot of uh, development that occurs that we've lost traditions for in terms of helping people navigate the social world, the occupational world, the building their own family world. Um, and so hopefully as part of even normal consciousness and normal functioning, these different experiences will have a place at different times in a developmental trajectory. Same for mental health problems, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I just had a, a follow-up question for you. Um, I was curious if you think there's a relationship between you know how rapid acting uh, and the duration of action of, of a psychedelic and how long uh, the therapeutic uh, like you know outcome lasts. Because you some with like ketamine, you see it you know it only lasts for like a week or two. Mm -hmm. Its antidepressant effects go away and it's very rapid acting. But with psilocybin, there's very persisting you know long-term effects. So I'm curious about yeah, that. Yeah, we don't know, certainly from, we don't have that data, but I can tell you from the, the surveys that we've done, people are describing uh, very long-term changes. Now, whether that holds true in a laboratory, you know, we'll have to see, but um, but certainly, you know, if there's some if there's some power in an experience to break somebody out of a cycle, whether that's a ruminative cycle 
or a traumatic processing cycle and open up the space for the possibility of healing, then I think that it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor and we'll see if it, if it can do that. I, I feel like I've gotten long-term benefits from my five um, MAO experience. Um, I didn't go into it depressed, but um, it felt like, um, yeah, you talk about source. It felt like at this moment, you know, you get to the moment of creation or something. I felt like so much was on um, autopilot, but that underneath all of those patterns is this ultimate um, creativity and freedom to go in every new direction. So I think what I gained from it was the sense of... Uh, not so much being trapped, but if I feel like I'm trapped, there, there's something to be done. There, there's changes possible you know, in many different ways. So I think it, it had that inspirational effect, but a long-lasting from just a very short experience. Well, and then the other point is, is, is that short experience is if you're looking at someone from the outside. I do DMT, and you're yeah. watching me do a DMT, and the, I, was, I, I had my... Um, eye mask on for five to ten minutes, but <laughs> under those eyelids, it, I lived lifetimes. Yeah. And what a and, great point! Yeah, I think it, we forget that the subjective experience can seem like a millennia. And I, I mean, this is you know the conscious experience. A, a few a few seconds is a is a very short amount of time, but in our in our inner worlds, if if, if you put your hand on a burner, uh, a few seconds is just much too long. So so obviously our our inner worlds are the speed of neural activity and everything is just working on such a different time scale so if you are which is kind of my point of view kind of seeing a, a different level of perception inside of your mind mm -hmm. it makes all sorts of sense that there would be a lot of time dilation and 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 it it can feel like those experiences which which according to a stopwatch would be 30 seconds or something stretch out for a very very long time yeah. and certainly within the experience it feels it feels like you you kind of yeah. know what's going well, on well one of the key questionnaires the questions for you know evaluating the mystical experience is the transcendence of time and space yeah. that's a key aspect Absolutely. of it yeah i've had i've had dmt experiences <laughs> that that make the my regular life feel like a tiny little blip in time mm -hmm. compared to the compared to the DMT experience. Yeah. Well, and a big thing that affects that is the root of administration. You know, most people are smoking or vaporizing 5-MeO-DMT, well, and, and NDMT for that matter. But well, there are some people who are reporting intramuscular injection and other roots of administration that d delay some of the onset and smooth out the experience in such a way. In fact, I think Groff talked about that a little bit, maybe a little bit, about how a different route of administration could actually spread things out, make it a little bit more time available to, to kind of get into there and explore that Well, space. that's the ayahuasca story, yeah. you know, for DMT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I didn't realize. So is the experiments that you do IV? So we have not started any experiments yet, oh, but okay. if we do get one yeah. uh, going, then it will almost certainly not be a smoked or vaporized route of administration. It would probably right, right. be some other route of administration that would yeah. be a little bit longer. Suppository? Actually. Yeah, suppository. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so excited. I know I just have you guys for like one more minute. Last little thing, kind of combining some of the things that we've been talking about because um, Ellen and Nick, you may not know, this is this is just a, a usually we're not talking about psychedelics on the show it's a science podcast doing a lot of life science stuff and one of the big things coming up right now related to what we've been talking about is this positive psychology movement which has right. it, it has a long ways to go and it has it has um you know some yeah. some gaps and um and has has gone in a few misdirections and a little self-helpy sometimes and everything but it makes some really valid yeah. points mm -hmm. of why are we focusing so much on just the pain the suffering blah blah, blah and not like 
I can also just um, feel feel a little more content in my everyday life. Well, well, I think the reason that we're focusing on the pain is because we're in a prohibition world, and the only thing we can get legal permission for really to change is medicines. Mm -hmm. So we can't even get couples therapy with MDMA through the FDA, mm -hmm. even though that's one of the very best uses of MDMA because it's not a disease. We have, we, so that right. we're stuck in that paradigm. That's why it was good you started talking about fun. Yeah. And also about of, other kinds of, and, and you talked about through the lifespan. I mean, um, rites of passage have always, you know, I've talked about how my bar mitzvah failed to turn me into a man. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bummer. Yeah, I, I, I've uh, my my single greatest MDMA experiences were were within the you know a relationship and uh, and all of the all of the um, you, you know being able to express uh, you know what would otherwise be very serious troubling relationship concerns in this very loving and understanding way and it's it's something that that really uh has benefited me so much in the past but i gotta get you guys out of here this is a perfect lead into the next hour which is all about dmt so uh it turns out we're probably just gonna be talking about dmt for three hours <laughs> today but uh thank you so much for being here alan davis nick denemy and rick doblin of course you guys were fantastic Thanks for what you do. Thanks for being here at the symposium. And I hope to have you all on individually again in the future. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Great shade. All right, everybody. Part two of the um, University of Michigan Psychedelic Science Symposium 2019. We have three more guests joining us. We got to we we talked about DMT a little bit um, on the in the first part. And now we're going to take a deep dive into the world of dimethyltryptamine. So I'm going to, once again, have my guests go around and introduce themselves. Um, so I'd say, John, uh, if you want to introduce yourself first to yeah, the sure. listeners. Yeah, so my name's John Dean, and uh, I'm a PhD candidate here at the University of Michigan, and I've been studying the uh, origins and potential functions of endogenous DMT in, in animals, including humans. And yeah, I also study the role of the prefrontal cortex and consciousness. So that's with my mentors, Dr. George Mishore and Jimo Borshagen. Wonderful. Um, consciousness, I've heard of it. Fun subject. Uh, all right, uh, Nick, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Nick Glinos, and I'm also a PhD candidate here at the University of Michigan. Uh, I'm working in the labs of Drs. Jimo Borshigan and Michael Wong, and we're interested in understanding the physiological regulation and function of endogenous dimethyltryptamine, and we're uh, performing studies currently to, to investigate that topic. Chris. Uh, my name is Chris Timmerman. I'm coming from uh, UK Imperial College London is where I work. I'm finishing my PhD soonish, I hope. Uh, and what I do is I administer uh, doses of DMT to healthy participants and try to understand what happens in the brain. And I do the work uh, together with uh, Robin Carhart-Harris and uh, David Nutts at Imperial College. 
What a fun job. Yeah. Um, I I was at Breaking Convention in London. Were you there? Yes, I was. So you see me walking around. I had a big top hat. Um, ah, you were uh, the I one. I was the top yeah, hat yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. I, I, think I, I think I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you wear a big top hat. You'll, you'll be... Uh, rem- I was at a... I was at a Port Elliot Festival. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever heard of it, but I was I was there, and there's a vintage clothing um, booth and a table full of old English uh, <laughs> hats from the early 1900s. Put a big top hat on for a joke, and looked in the mirror. I was like, "Well, now that's my top hat. Damn uh-huh. it!" So um, you should have brought it to Michigan. It's in my car right now. Nice. Believe me. Yeah, I sometimes I sometimes wear it on stage. What's the best way to start? I would say first off, um, John, let's get into why is DMT. First off, how do we even know that DMT is uh, naturally occurring in our bodies or brains? Right. So it's been known for many years that uh, there, there are amounts, trace amounts is what it's been kind of lumped into the definition of of DMT and animals uh, from a diverse amount of animals. So uh, humans, obviously, is the big topic, but rats, rabbits, it's been found in, in chickens and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, the big question that we set out to address recently uh, was a couple of things, actually twofold. One was where in the body is, is DMT potentially being made? Because it was always thought that it was in the lungs. And then two was are these levels of DMT ever at a concentration that you could consider in the realm of physiologically pertinent? Uh, because prior studies have looked at either concentrations in the urine or the blood. Um, a lot of that technology was a little dated in terms of the analytical techniques they used. And also peripheral metabolism will certainly play a role into how much you're able to detect. So we sort of circumvented that by actually probing directly in a rat model and in, in rat brain to answer that type of question. So that's kind of the background on our, our research. And we could dig deeper from there. Yeah. Well, first off, do do uh, do cats have uh, DMT now? Because every time I smoke DMT, not every time, but I, I've seen some cats in the space. I'm wondering if that maybe explains huh. why I'm seeing like weird. Have you ever see, seen the heard heard the reports of like the DMT cats? People see like the Felix the cat. I see the Cheshire cat sometimes. The, the DMT <laughs> cat phenomenon makes complete sense to me. Actually, yes, it does. So. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, what, what do you mean it makes complete sense? <laughs> to my knowledge, I'm not sure about cats, but it won't surprise me. I mean, uh, you know, rats are are it, it, as you step up. I mean, it's it's been found in so many animals that I would I would imagine it's probably in cats too, but I don't know for sure. I mean, cats are the closest animal out there that like seem like wizards kind of and <laughs> so i wouldn't be surprised if they were tripping all of the time they seem like it they're pretty chill creatures so um it, um oh wait where am i um oh yeah so nick you you um study what happens when when you take out the the gene for um responsible for synthesizing dmt right actually yeah um so in a in a large way i'm continuing with the work that uh, john has just completed in uh on the the paper that he's just uh, submitted and john showed that dmt is likely synthesized in the rodent brain and it's present in concentrations relevant to other important neurotransmitters so our next step is to ask the question, is DMT actually a neurotransmitter? Does it function like other neurotransmitters? Uh, So in order to do that, we're using some molecular techniques to probe for certain proteins and transporters. 
Um, and in, in addition to that, like you said, we're using what's called a knockout model and we've knocked out or deleted the protein that is necessary for DMT synthesis in rats. So that effectively generates a rat that cannot produce any DMT. So it's a DMT deficient rat. And we're using this animal model to uh, probe into some of the hypotheses that have been proposed about DMT in the past, um, such as is DMT involved in the sleep-wake regulation cycle, or uh, maybe is it involved in REM sleep or dreaming in any way? Does it have implications in cardiac arrest or uh, extreme physiological situations? And this rat model is uh, the first, it's the first time it's been generated. So we have a lot of experiments that we can carry out. And we're currently doing a lot of those studies uh, right now in the lab. Hmm. I'll build on that actually, you know, if I may, I always play devil's advocate with, with the work. Um, I think his work's going to be important because finding it in a, in a concentration that we did that was about half a serotonin, I mean, it's intriguing. It certainly warrants more research, but at the same time, it, it doesn't necessitate that it's going to be a neurotransmitter just because you have it in those concentrations. There's a lot of other things to consider, like its affinity at certain receptors that play a role in, in modulating neurotransmission. Can it be stored into vesicles and released like a classical neurotransmitter? So those are the types of questions that, that Nick's going to build on, but I feel like our study is a, a very solid foundation, at least pushing in that direction to say, hey, it's not a trace amount like we thought. It seems like it could be a physiologically pertinent amount. And the genes that are necessary for its synthesis seem to be pretty active in the brain, at least in rats and actually in humans too. One of the genes we found very active in human brain too. Hmm. So so run down for me what, what is the criteria and what makes something a neurotransmitter? So there's, uh, I guess, four general criteria that you could um, that you could rely on. And the first one is that there are specialized neurons in the brain to synthesize that that compound. So there are serotonergic neurons or dopaminergic neurons. Um, the second criteria is that there's a vesicular storage mechanism. So um, many of the, well, the neurotransmitters we're talking about, serotonin, dopamine, um, they're subjected to rapid metabolic degradation if they're not protected. So you need to be able to store them in vesicles in order to protect them from that metabolism. So the second criteria is a vesicular storage mechanism. The third criteria is that once that neurotransmitter is stored in a vesicle, uh, it undergoes uh, exocytosis where it's released into the extracellular space where it can activate postsynaptic receptors. Um, and the fourth and final criteria is that there's a mechanism to recycle or reuptake that compound after it's been released into the synapse. And for serotonin, for example, that's the serotonin transporter. It's a transporter on the membrane that takes up serotonin that's been released in the, in the synapse. So as talked about, we have a strong inclination that there is, there is enzymes necessary to synthesize DMT in the brain. And we know that DMT is present in concentrations relevant to things like serotonin. So the two questions that we have are, is there a vesicular storage mechanism and is there a plasma membrane reuptake mechanism? Hmm. So those are the two things that we're exploring with regards to DMT as a neurotransmitter. The reuptake, is that just recycling or is, isn't that kind of signaling um, a shutoff at a, a certain level in most neurotransmitters? Right, yeah, it's a, it's a multifunctional transporter. So it's it's recycling the compound to, to be stored in vesicles for future exocytosis. And it's also a regulation mechanism to basically turn off the signal. So it takes the neurotransmitter back into the cell, preventing it from activating any of the postsynaptic receptors. Mm. DMT, you're going to get dealt with. <laughs> uh, so uh, you certainly are if if, uh, if 
if Chris's work pans out, you're you're working on some. Are you already doing extended trips, or is that just the 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 future? That's uh, the the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like um, yeah, those dystopian films that happen in like one year, or two years time, kind of like a Black Mirror sort of scenario of sorts. Mm. But it's, yeah, we're meant to be maybe starting mid next year or something like that. So what is the DMT ex- extended state? You're, you're going from seven minutes to eight minutes? Or w- what are we talking about here? We're aiming for 30 minutes. Oh. Um, I've heard some people being like, we're going to have a four-hour DMT extended yeah. trip. No, I mean... I mean, I think there's an element of safety yeah. that needs to be kind of, um, you know, watched out. Uh, 30 minutes, I feel, is necessary as an initial sort of exploration. Uh, going beyond that might be a bit too much. We don't know like if, if it's going to be able to keep people in there with that level of immersion. Um. Yeah. Beyond that amount of time, even thirty minutes. So yeah, we're gonna start with thirty minutes. You're starting at thir- Why not start at twelve minutes and then eighteen minutes and <laughs> then twenty-two minutes? Well, I guess thirty minutes is the max uh, that we're gonna aim to. Um, and if we see it's it becomes you know uh, too much for someone, it's very easy to just turn it off mm. because DMT is metabolized so fast. We have the mechanisms to get rid of it in the body very fast. You know, it's quite safe. You just turn the machine off. Mm. So in principle, it's very doable. So how long after you turn off DMT do you, uh, does it metabolize, uh, metabolize like, uh, would that be, would that be like a regular DMT trip from the time you, you turn off the button? Is it, is it another five to 10 minutes? Yeah, we expect something like five to 10 minutes, mm. similar to a boldest infusion of DMT, what we've done in the past. And we see that people, you know, recover from the whole thing within 20 minutes or so. Mm. Yeah. I've had some longer-ish DM. Yeah. I've had I've had ones that seem like they you know usually time them, and I've had some that go up to like fifteen minutes or so, and then I've had I've seen other people have some that seemed more like twenty minutes yeah. um, or longer. So there must be so many variables involved in in the way in which people metabolize. Yeah, well, there's that, and then there's you know like when does an experience end exactly? Uh, is it about when you're in that breakthrough space? or is it when you're completely back into your normal sort of state some people remain with their eyes closed because they really want to take in whatever happened they're in that kind of like that limbo state Mm -hmm. so that variability can also be explained by those kind of things Um, how in a way people are relating to the you know the full-blown experience they they just had and you know I think that's also part of the story Mm. which also combines with the whole specific biological variability of people all these factors come into play when determining the time. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of times you have the kind of intense experience of DMT wears off, and and it's kind of like, oh, I'm I'm done now. I'm, I'm that's that's worn off, and then you open your eyes and then go, oh, that's I'm <laughs> that's still working, and then you go to close your eyes again to like get back, kind of back to where you are, yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't work once mm-hmm. you. Once you've like opened your eyes, you can't get back into that same headspace. Yeah. Um, so, and and that's and that's not necessarily like a neural transmitter 
um, thing or metabolizing in a certain way. That's more of just uh, after the fact kind of processing the experience. Could be. I mean, it combines with the whole specific biological mechanisms, neurotransmitter mechanisms in a specific way. I mean, if there's a strong experience ensuing anyway, it's going to be hard to engage with the external world regardless, Mm -hmm. right? But after a certain threshold, there's more room for action, opening one's eyes and and try to go back and so on. Mm. In the last hour, we're talking about DMT trips that, that, you know, they might last for five minutes, but sometimes feel like lifetimes in there. But when, when you are extending with, with the DMT extended state, is it going to be different in terms of the intensity? Because my understanding is you, you smoke DMT, you kind of have this early onset, this really big peak that's, that's almost beyond what is needed for for the DMT state and then it and then it levels off that's why kind of the first 2 minutes is really intense and then and then the next 5 minutes or whatever is a is a little more manageable for people mm-hmm. so in in your setting are you just bringing people to a set level gradually and then just keeping them at that same level yeah. for Okay. I mean, there's different options that we can explore, but that's the main one. Uh, seeing what are the specific parameters that are needed uh, for a person to be in that breakthrough space as long as they can be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is the initial. But then we can ask some interesting questions. So what are the mechanisms of this sort of breakthrough moment? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you know you could easily think about is that you can keep somebody on that specific limbo when they're you know we're and they're in that threshold of uh, breaking through of sorts. So then you can see that you can see very interesting mechanisms probably around how we're building this kind of like massive simulation felt space that people usually talk about with DMT. Hmm. Um, I wonder. I wonder if you'd get bored in there after 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 a thousand lifetimes or so. Are yeah. you like oh, I don't need another thousand lifetimes? Well, the the meme, uh, the waiting room, huh? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe people get stuck in that waiting room that we right. talk about. Yeah, or if there'll be a tolerance at that. I mean, I know that DMT right. does not build a tolerance based on studies that have given it in rats like over and over and over uh-huh. again. I was actually at Domino of uh, University of Michigan. He did that study a long time ago. I remember talking to Rick Strassman about it, about DMT tolerance. And he was like, oh yeah, your buddy at Domino did that study. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, would you think that, may, I, I, is that something you consider that there might be a, some sort of tolerance at, at a level when you just continuously administer it like that? or? So I think we have reasons to think that there's no acute tolerance with DMT uh, in general. Like, uh, so Rick showed in his research that you can administer it like four times every 30 minutes and and people, you know, still right, have the yeah. strong psychological effects. That hmm. being said, uh, you know, some people, and we've had some of these people as our participants, uh, they smoke a lot of DMT, a lot of DMT, a lot of DMT. And there's a very interesting thing happens that then they don't experience it like anything else they just black out immediately, uh, and usually in their narratives, uh, they they go to the space and the you know the beings or whoever is in there tells them, um, you know you shouldn't come back. You know we told you like when is it gonna be enough? And then they like shut the door. Uh, so it's interesting. You get these reports of people. We had a participant in the study who didn't. So, it sounds anything. like my dad. Like when are you gonna learn? <laughs> come on! I already told you everything you need to know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Maybe, you know, there's who knows what's going on in these cases. You should talk about that participant from yesterday. That was very interesting. What what you were just about to talk about. The the participant that literally 
just was like, yeah, I can't can't go there anymore. Yeah, yeah. And did you see that in the in the brain image too? So we have, I have the data from the participant. Oh. I haven't analyzed it, but if we don't find anything, that would be so fascinating. It would be pretty wild. Um, yeah, in a, in a way, like the experience mingles with these long-term tolerance mechanisms. I know tolerance is a very complex uh, biological mechanism. I mean, aren't most things on some sort of hedonic treadmill? Kind of, you you get a you get a reward, and we I got that reward, and then you get a raise one day, and you're like, terrific, I got a raise, and then that raise becomes your new normal, and then and isn't most everything in life like that? I, I can see smoking smoking DMT and having the peaks. And coming back down and then smoking again, even even though in my experience it hasn't worked for me, but I can still see un, see that. But it seems like an extended state of like reaching a plateau. It would see if it was acting like other neurotransmitters. Wouldn't you need to be increasing over time potentially? It, I know I'm asking you guys just to wildly speculate on things that you haven't studied, but that's what I like to do. Well, so, I mean, the prior data, like Chris said, points to it not being yeah. like Strassman showed that in the original studies, like dose come down, dose come down, dose come down, and people pretty much get to the same point in those studies. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I was more inquiring, I guess, yeah, more inquiring kind of what you're saying, more like a psychological thing where if you get to that space and you're suspended there for so long, what happens? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a couple episodes on on satiation and the way in which, you know, we, we feel full. It has less to do with how actually physically full our stomach is and all of this myriad of other criteria. Is it like the same food over and over again? Did you get offered dessert afterwards? And, and that sort of thing. And it, and it seems like there might be something like that happening because I, I have had, I've certainly had that experience myself where I've, um, quote unquote, came back too soon and they were like, we already told you all this stuff from last time. And I'm like, yeah, but I forgot so all of it. You got it then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I know it all now. Thanks, DMT. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, I, but to me, in, in talking about consciousness, which I'd uh, like to get into a little bit, if that's cool. Um, if uh, my my take on the DMT experience is that it's that your consciousness is kind of being dropped into the um, is trying to assess the internal environment much like a, a dream state is or a nightmare is possibly your consciousness kind of being inserted in this environment that is has a bunch of cortisol in it at the moment your prefrontal cortex is shut down so it doesn't have the same regulatory system to uh, discern reality in the same way that we normally would and it's and it's creating a story based on you know this environment of, of uh, neural signals and transmitters and everything that so I'm I'm wondering if there is so if there's some sort of tolerance mechanism happening and your consciousness is finding itself inserted in that world if it's being projected then as this entity being like we already learned all this just like listening to the same song over and over and over again you're gonna be like okay was my favorite sh song but I think I've heard it enough exactly I mean I think that that's precisely what I was going with with the idea that there's a very interesting mechanism in how we build these stories which could be maybe interpretation of like different signals from our body. Mm -hmm. And maybe these tolerance mechanisms have some sort of narrative in the same way that we make stories out of everything mm -hmm. uh, that happens to us in a way. Yeah. And it would be very interesting if that could be somehow proven mm -hmm. as you're somehow becoming aware of your tolerance mechanisms, but you make a, a very interesting story about it. Uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah. 
Well, so I don't want to veer us too far out of that direction, but I mean, one one of the things that I find interesting, you know, there's all these hypotheses around DMT endogenously, like, is it involved in dreaming? Is it involved in the near-death experience? But is it involved in everyday perception is the question that I think is one of the most exciting. Ooh, that I is mean, an exciting veer. Just finding it at yeah. a level comparable to a known neurotransmitter um, in, a, in a visual area in the brain, it's like, huh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a, a visual, and then DMT is such a visual experience. Mm. So, so that's why I think uh, that Nick is going to take the ball on that one. Right? Yeah. It so solves the problems. <laughs> so, so, so we do have the uh, INMT knockout model uh, rat, which uh, hypo- or theoretically doesn't have any DMT, and uh, we're those are definitely some of our interests and our future directions is to do behavioral studies and do uh, EEG measurements and do social interaction studies and um, do just some of these basic physiological um, investigations on maybe what's upregulated or downregulated when you when you get rid of DMT or you get rid of this INMT protein. Because, yeah, honestly, just like you said, there's all these hypotheses about what endogenous DMT is doing, but we really have very little to zero scientific evidence to support or refute any of them. I mean, so. once you guys verify that rat isn't making DMT or is making less DMT, whatever, I mean, there's so much you could do with it. I mean, there's so many different groups that would be interested and in, You could in, do anything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just perceptual studies that they do in rats. Stress and, studies, yeah, exactly. behavioral studies, yeah. there, there, there's a lot. I mean, what can't you do with DMT? But, <laughs> I, I mean, what, what happens in these rats? You take out their, their ability to um, produce DMT naturally. Is there a behavioral impact on that? Uh, at, at first glance, we uh, haven't seen any obvious behavioral phenotype. Hmm. Um, and we're currently... Uh, replicating the cardiac arrest studies that John talked about in his recent paper uh, to see if DMT has any kind of role in modulating or anything, any kind of role in the the near death or the dying experience. Mm. We're also just or doing the cortical dynamics, just the, just the general cortical dynamics of, yeah. of sleep wake cycles and and different um, different stages of the sleep of the sleep cycles. So we're really just just getting into some of the initial experiments and probing into what what. The endo- what the function of endogenous DMT could be, and it's still early on, so we can't really come with, come up with any um, solid conclusions at this point. But we're definitely hard at work at it, and you know should have should have some information soon. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and I guess in kind of the role of DMT in consciousness, it's hard to you can't really ask a rat to be like, "Hey, why did you why why did you run on that wheel a little bit?" Consciousness from my perspective seems to be kind of this romanticized traumatized story of you know kind of making up um these explanations for um and constructing a narrative for what happened on these um much more nuanced levels that we can't really um be consciously aware of and so how do you study that in a rat exactly yeah that's one of the troubles with just using animal models in general and especially when you get into the realm of consciousness you know because that's just such a such a hazy area i mean even even with human studies and you try to translate that to animal studies and it's even more difficult difficult to interpret or come up with any any kind of sound conclusions and especially more so when you're looking at dmt in the in the light of consciousness studies because uh you know the truth is that uh dmt may have some other you know sort of more boring physiological function maybe it has something to do with like a uh, just general um stress responses or maybe um, there's some, some research out of, uh, Hungary showing, uh, protection from hypoxia, like low oxygen conditions or maybe immune responses. 
So uh, at this point, we really can't be sure of anything uh, with regards to endogenous DMT, and we can't even make any conclusions that it's modulating consciousness in any way. Hmm. Well, the rats definitely... So you'll you'll be speaking with Mike in a minute. Um, well, uh, several minutes, but you get it. Uh, and he he works with ketamine, mm-hmm. and um, he's been he's been administering ketamine in a rodent model. And you know it, it's clear when you get the right dose that the rat is tripping. Mm-hmm. I mean, even so far as like some of the animals will eat an imaginary pellet that's mm-hmm. not there. They'll just like hold air in their hands and eat like they're eating food. You know, Do so they ever they're, they're, got, get paranoid, like maybe that they're being tested or something like that, or in a lab with aliens working? Well, on. you know, uh, that's, so, that's something you can think about when you when you work with animals, you know. <laughs> but then it makes me question, uh, how do we know we're not being tested on? Right. <laughs> yeah, it also makes me go home and drink a fifth of Jack Daniels. <laughs> that kind of stuff. That, yeah, uh, that's, uh, I mean, simulation theory has, has yeah. some merit to it. Um, I, I, I mean... From my own use of DMT and then my understanding of, of consciousness, it seems it seems pretty involved. I've, I've had a lot of experiences where early on in, in experiences, it was exceptionally fast changing scenes. So if you just mm. say Google DMT images, um, you know, I'm in this one face and then I'm in this room and then I'm in a metaphor for the people at home. It, it would be DMT doesn't look like anything that you're seeing in this world, but it'd be like if you were found yourself underwater and then you found yourself in a pyramid and then you found yourself on a train and, and like almost changing just as fast as you could blink your eyes. Well, what I found out that over time after I used it more, some of these scenes would slow down and I was able to kind of spend more time in these scenes. And I really think that a lot of what was happening was uh, because it's such a jarring experience, it was me on some level being like, no, that can't be it. No, that can't be it. So it was very quickly creating a new scene. Like, what about this? What about this? Is this what's happening? And then as I did more and like kind of bought into the idea of a scene, that's when it kind of stretched out like, oh, okay. Got him. Hey, he's he's into this narrative. We'll we'll stick with the we'll stick with the space carnival or whatever. And and not that not that any of those are the um, quote unquote like correct interpretation of what's going on, but just what um what what we're buying into. I mean, I think that's kind of a metaphor for life itself. It's like know, many of our dreaming. perceptions. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Almost like developing an expertise uh, through experience. Uh, almost like manipulating the scenes as you as you're having them. Yeah, which is quite cool. But I'd say, I mean, we're talking with Nick on the way here on like, if there is a function on day-to-day perception or reality, yeah. uh, based on the like the reports from our participants and how prevalent, there are two things which appear to be like super common across people. One is the effects of the body. Like it has this energy rush flow thing, liberation. I don't know. Some people link it to this Kundalini sort of new age idea. And the other is the idea of perception of fractals and geometries. And I think that, yeah, that was the thing that we were talking about. It was quite interesting. Maybe there's a connection, uh, if there is an endogenous role for that, into the perceptions of lines, edges, and so on, which we have, you know, we, we have kind of a good understanding of, of the cortex. And yeah, it's, it's, it's also an interesting possibility that there might be a role there. If there is a role there, now it's super speculative realm, but that might be a possibility in a way. It, it, it is speculative, and, and I and I told Chris that um, we we don't see any signs of that in, in the knockout model currently, and in, in, in the knockout animal. So we don't see 
we don't see disorientation or inability to, you know, just move normally. There, there's really, there's really no signs of that. There's, there's no obvious phenotypes in this, in this knockout animal. So, um, given the hallucinatory and powerful visual effects of exogenous DMT, it's, it's, it's plausible to speculate that it's, you know, modulating some sort of the, the visual experience. But again, it's just kind of too early to say at this point for us. I mean, for most people, they would have a DMT experience and they would say that it was everything was so complex in there and, and it was uh, just so intricate and detailed and overwhelming. And uh, but, you know, you look you look at some of these images um, from from my perception and and it's where were these pretty. Um, we're a new species of this primate that has this very new tool called the computer that, you know, already with our primitive um, computers, we're able to replicate the imagery of these experiences. You can make a screensaver. No problem. It takes very little computation to create um, a series of fractals. And it's just a recursive um, program. And, and to me, that's more of an indicator that it's that it's um, that perhaps you're just seeing some of the um, some of the earlier layers of of the perception. visual process yeah. yeah that's like a neil seth's work that stuff's fascinating like comparing the google deep dream algorithms to there's some analogies there that seem to I, I mean i don't know much about ai but it seems to be more than an analogy there's yeah me either but you know and, and speaking of like a simulation theory because you go you go you do the dmt experience and you're like geez well that seemed very real and and then you come back here and you're like, well, is this real then? How can both of those worlds be real at the same time? It's, it's incompatible with, they're incompatible with one another. But uh, so like, is that a simulation? Is this a simulation? And to me, to make something, to make a bunch of fractals and make something, something that is so symmetrical and so perfect, like it is, is almost much easier computationally than than say creating the 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 many flaws and imperfections in this world of of the wrinkles in our skin and that that sort of thing but actually take more computation um to put together and i just i just think that because it's such a novel experience it'd be like if you had say you never had a dream in your in your entire life and then you had your first dream of your entire life it would seem like the most real thing you've ever ex- you don't understand the reality is we're all living in a in space and there's clowns everywhere you know but but because no one's ever had this like intense DMT experience maybe they're always having a little bit of a DMT experience they're overinterpreting what what is going on in that experience for sure yeah, and and it happens also with the memes going around uh, regarding the DMT experience. I think the whole alien story, uh, even the simulation story, right now, like when you think about it and you look at uh, what Rick Strassman did in the '90s and the reports from his participants, is like it's all about aliens. And no, you know, UFOs were big in the '90s, but now they're like you know yeah. they're not such a big thing. So what's the thing now? It's like simulation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, these are memes that get thrown around, and people just grab onto them because you know people yeah, we, just have to make sense of it somehow. We're always using our environment to interpret our inner world, and mm-hmm. we have agriculture, and and uh, and when you're kind of con- 
conceptualizing what an idea is. You're like, I'm planting a seed of an idea and it embodies this nice thing breaking open and blossoming. And, and then the light bulb comes around, ding, I had an idea. What was an idea before the light bulb? And then computers come around. We're like, we're getting these massive downloads. So we do this whether we're tripping or not. We do this in everyday life. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess that was just a statement that I was making for, <laughs> for no reason. Um, but I, I, what about in terms of in terms of seeing aliens? I think another explanation might be in trying to interpret your inner world. We all have these many different hats that we wear in life. These many different sub selves. This is this is maybe getting a little uh, too far out there compared to just like. Uh, what a neurotransmitter is doing, but a, a little more in the role of consciousness. If you look at, you know, the like cortical homunculus of, of the of the body map, and every every part of your body is a different ratio than um, than uh, than it is physically. Like your hands dominate much of uh, a lot more neural activity. Um, what, what if you're doing DMT? tapping into some sub-self and then it looks like an alien just because that's what the representation of you looks like in in that world well there's a definite space in the psyche for it i mean you even alluded to it in the you know i'm being probed and studied thing i mean that's a Mm -hmm. pretty predominant thing throughout culture in terms of i mean even look at like sleep paralysis i think is a very good contemporary example i mean not even necessarily contemporary but in terms of like psychiatric literature etc um, there's a really good documentary on Netflix about sleep paralysis recently, and uh, it prompted me to read a couple papers. But there's a lot of similarities between those types of states and some of the states described on psychedelics that, hmm. um, you know, probably warrant some additional attention. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting how much consciousness kicks in too in a in a novel situation like that, where normally. You wake up, your body wakes up with you. Mm. But once in a while, <laughs> a person wakes up and their body doesn't wake up. And then consciousness creates this narrative that they're like being held down by an alien or something. And right. maybe there's just something very much like that happening in a DMT state. Hmm. Um, that's that's another one of the uh, kind of longstanding hypotheses with regards to endogenous DMT is just the connection to psychiatric disorder. Schizophrenia was the big one back in the 60s and perpetuated all through the 70s and even into the 80s, I believe, too, and just some potential idea that maybe some alteration in DMT metabolism or DMT regulation is causing these schizophrenic outcomes in in psychotic patients. And that was, it was researched pretty heavily in the in the 70s, I think, is when it kind of shut down. And um, after the Controlled Substances, Substances Act, of course, you know, DMT research kind of got shut down in general. And it hasn't really been revisited with modern detection tools um, that we have have nowadays to you know detect the varying levels of endogenous DMT and and schizophrenic or normal subjects. Um, so that's that's definitely another big possibility and something that's you know worth exploring. It's a very interesting question. I mean, it's pretty fine line between genius and insanity. I mean, there's some brilliant eccentric people out there, right? Right. So I mean, it's creativity slash i mean creativity basically seems like it's a form of psychosis if you want to use negative language you know like that um but it's all it's also uh i think a little bit of of a big claim to say that you know it's only endogenous dmt like dmt is the only thing that's causing schizophrenia like i I think to, to claim that it's one molecule one neurotransmitter that's or whatever whatever you want to call it that's affecting and causing this this disorder this really complex mental psychotic yeah. disorder i think that's that's a little bit too big of a claim it's a very um, human 
silver bullet type of exactly yeah. right. mm-hmm. and heterogeneous i mean schizophrenia manifests in many different forms i don't think we understand it like if you speak with any clinician and you speak about like the science of schizophrenia they will always like mention this is just you know it's not well defined like we have so many different types and, and trying to find a specific sort of thing to explain that whole phenomenon is almost impossible so. i read a really good article the other day about um uh, an american that had uh, schizophrenia and then ended up actually going to to visit with some shamans i'm not sure the country that he went to but it basically was getting to the point where in other cultures that are that are more communal that schizophrenia isn't viewed in the same negative light as it sometimes is in America, and that's not saying that you know that that a schizophrenic is is not or is healthy, so to speak. But just the whole idea of like neurodiversity, I think, is a very yeah. important movement with like autism and things of that nature. I mean, it's just a different way of perceiving the reality that's around us and yeah so other cultures are like listen to this guy he's talking about aliens hey buddy what are the aliens (laughs) saying whereas in the west we tend to be like oh i'm gonna (laughs) run away from that guy or or in many cultures how they consider the sham like the shaman usually begins in some cultures as you know what we could conceive as a schizophrenic person who goes out into the forest, sorts himself out in some way, and when he comes back, he's the you know he's the shaman. He's the yeah, healer. that's pretty much yeah. know, what the article is saying. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, how do you define normal? Um, I mean, there's this classic paper. I think I shared it with you recently, John. And it's I think the title is "Being Sane in Insane Places," and it's from the 70s, I think. And these um, psych- uh, psychiatrists or psychologists got themselves uh, purposely admitted into a into a psychiatric ward, and then. Uh, tried to get out and found out that they couldn't because um, the people uh, in the psychiatric ward couldn't be convinced that they were actually sane because of the environment that they were that that they were in, and it just kind of goes to show that uh, the environment that you're surrounded in, that you're kind of swimming in, can kind of dictate the 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 norms or the things that are um, that are kind of perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of norms that are perpetuated, I, I have three scientists. Usually, I'm I'm going around. I'm doing a show about psychedelics to a bunch of psychedelic enthusiasts, and uh, my my view on what the DMT experience is, which is much more of like a um, kind of like the movie Inside Out, just kind of you're seeing your idea factories and the things running simulations to. Uh, do mental rehearsals and that sort of thing and it just looks like a holographic world um, in in that layer of perception uh, most people are like nope you are you are seeing aliens you're seeing different dimensions you're seeing things outside of space time as uh, as we know them uh, you guys as as scientists do you have do you ever you ever like go back and forth with any of that? Do you, uh, have you? Uh, are, are you pretty grounded in like this is just happening inside of our brain? This is consciousness interpreting the, our inner space. Where do you? Where do you guys stand? I'm certainly open to uh, multiple interpretations, uh, just because I think it's hard to come up with a, a clear definition of um, what what a hallucination is and uh, whether or not my experience of visual stimulus is the same as your experience of visual stimulus and that's just one of the problems of of consciousness we were just talking about this recently and you know it's almost impossible for me to prove that you're conscious it's almost impossible for me to prove that the 
the world that you see is the same as the world I see. Yeah. So you infer you're like, well, when I feel sad, I frown. I'm seeing that this person is frowning. So maybe they are experiencing the same internal thing that I am. When uh, George who put the symposium on, we do a journal club every fall and uh, two weeks ago, I think was the first one. And that's how he starts every, every time he comes in like fresh new group of people. He'll be like, okay, show of hands, how many of you think I'm conscious? <laughs> like, <laughs> usually it's like 40%. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, especially in the field, especially with the users and everything and, and the things, all the ideas throwing around. One of the things that I'm interested in, I study is uh, how beliefs change after a, a single experience mm-hmm. with a psychedelic, especially in psychedelic retreats, mm-hmm. and like how metaphysical views and worldviews can change. And, you know, there's some pretty interesting stuff out there, you know, like people become less materialists in the mm-hmm. metaphysical way, more dualists. Right. Uh, so there's almost like people are veering into some sort of like innatist uh, view of the world that you usually learn how to avoid by learning about science that being said so i have like a i am always kind of like going a bit back and forth i think it's, it's a very complicated issue also because i'm from south america and you know indigenous populations have a certain view on these things and it's hard as a scientist to impose some sort of you know meaning of truth uh, or metaphysical truth regarding these experiences um I tend to view it from the scientific perspective that you know a nuanced approach has to be taken to the idea of what is real and what is not real. Uh, many times uh, in these experiences, people fall into what they think is super real and then clearly it's not real. Many shamans will tell you ayahuasca is the biggest liar in the world. So you have these uh, a lot of these narratives that if you know. The, the the narrative and the discourse can become more nuanced mm-hmm. around what is real and what is not real and maybe that the discussion doesn't need to be centered around specifically what is real but what is more helpful for the person mm-hmm. and then we verge into kind of like clinical territory and so on and it's interesting in a way because if you have insights that in a psychedelic therapy sessions are meaningful for your life and you consider them to be truth, an ultimate truth, then that is very good for you, right? And who is a scientist to kind of like tell you, no, that is wrong. Like metaphysically, that cannot be true in a way. Mm. So it becomes quite complicated, this idea of truth and what is not truth. And Mm. I don't know, I think it's um, tricky territory. Science is just one vantage. I mean, obviously, as what I would consider myself, certainly a scientist, um, it's a very important vantage, but it's not the end all be all. And I mean, if, if you're trying to boil down the perception of something or an experience to a protein or a brainwave, it's clearly not the whole story. It's a model, like mm-hmm. all of science is a model. I mean, I'd like to personally think there's more to me than, say, a, a weed whacker mm-hmm. or, or some instrument of some sort you know so i think that it is uh, well even if there's not you're a fantastic weed whacker thanks man (laughs) i knew you had my back dude (laughs) i knew that when i met you in youngstown ohio baby i was like this dude's got my back um i i mean i've i've certainly had i've I've had plenty of experiences that that don't um that aren't easily explained by my typical like scientific lens of of interpreting those experiences of of people seeing kind of the exact same uh, beings or entities without having been told about experiences ahead of time and and um, seemingly talking and sharing different messages. I, I mean, I ultimately, when, when 
you know, I'll come out of a DMT experience being like, I just saw some other dimension and it was this. And then like a, a year later, I'm like, well, we probably all have a idea of what a perfect woman is. And when you see that represented, it's just this purple lady who lives in space. And that's why we're all seeing this purple lady and we're calling it Shiva. And, and so I, I, I go, um, I go back and forth. The thing, I, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, mysticism might help with some of the scientific approach. I think scientific approach might help understand where mysticism yeah. comes from. If if you're seeing, say you are just seeing a representation of yourself and we're all living these kind of, we're all the center of our own universe of perception because there's no 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 other way that it can be. Um, and so you, you go and you talk to an entity and you're like, what are you? And it's like, I'm everything. It certainly doesn't make it any less fascinating. Yeah. If it turns out oh, to be no. just a part of your psyche. It's still like, whoa. Like that. <laughs> yeah. that's an experience that can happen that's what my brain can do yeah i know why is that happening that way yeah that's absolutely incredible um what about uh, the last thing what about uh, because i i think this is um I, I touched on the time dilation um you know there's a commonly reported thing what's what's your take on why people are experiencing this time dilation is there like a very specific region that is assessing time that gets impaired during these experiences well recently they discovered uh chronotopic maps in the brain so you know it could be you know like specific brain regions in which time is kind of being mapped out Mm. could be affected by psychedelics uh we don't know precisely uh, another possibility, uh, and this is, you know, this is specul- uh, speculation built upon evidence, is that we have a simple, uh, like, a certain temporal window of perception. So perception is uh, occurring as separate scenes, as discrete moments. Mm-hmm. We interpolate them. We have like a film kind of effect happening with this interpolation, but it's just mm-hmm. like photographs. And that is usually around 100 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know, at least with LSD, is that the brain process that cuts that tr- threshold gets faster. Hmm. Uh, so it's very reasonable to speculate, and this is a testable hypothesis, uh, that you are actually perceiving more of those pictures within the same amount of time, which could explain why you get tracers with LSD and so on. Hmm. Now, if that is the case, you're having more information in the the same amount of clock or physical time. Hmm. And that could possibly explain why, you know, you could have the subjective sense of time being expanded. I mean, it doesn't just happen on psychedelics either. People get in a near-miss car accident and they'll say time slowed down. So have I. And it seems like an, an, an exceptionally traumatic or novel or salient moment. It, it seems like, you know, I, I have talked about jumping off a thing and breaking my feet. And what happened was in like a couple seconds, my mind went back through time do i have anything that that can help me in this situation did i see like a macgyver episode or something that can get me out of here and then <laughs> but then it also projects possibilities of uh do i call a do i call a helicopter right now am i going to crawl down from here and then and then it's going like well what what if i wouldn't have done this or that where would where would i be right now and it, it's it's running all of these simulations which it might just the brain is probably just running simulations like that much of the time but uh, but especially during these like really pertinent critical maybe you don't need to do that with every step that you're taking in life but maybe maybe you smoke dmt and your consciousness is 
quickly trying to grasp it like what the hell just happened and it's and it's searching back through time and projecting forward and just at that level it just seems like it stretches infinitely long another possibility is that like with our data we see that you know entropy increases when we administer dmt Hmm. so that means that you know we can interpret that like increase in entropy or disorder that uh, more information is being processed uh, in that signal, that specific brain signal that we're capturing. Mm. If there is more information being processed in a way, again, the idea of you know phenomena occurring within a specific amount of time, because it increases, you can have the, the perception again that more time is passing. Yeah. Could be. It's a possibility. And that's just, that just kind of goes back to the idea of, I mean, the classical idea of the reducing valve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that the brain is just, yeah, one of the main functions is to like, sh- shut down or to, to block out information because there's just mm-hmm. too much coming in. So maybe some some form of this uh, experience is just allowing just more information to come in and be processed and um, giving us access to, to those to those other parts of our brain that we're normally not accessing. Ain't it crazy how all them creative types get it right before the scientists? <laughs> <laughs> they figured it out, figured out all that stuff a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, these are, I mean, part of the, the issue with that is because these creative types like myself are allowed to experiment on ourselves and get rewarded for doing so and, and get to tell these stories and bounce them off people and, and you're allowed to sound, uh, you know, to be a divergent thinker and to have uh, to have new ideas and and in fact encouraged and paid for doing that. And I think that a lot of why science hasn't thought of this stuff sooner is because they just don't get rewarded in the same way. I, I don't think mavericks get um, re, you know represented in in academia as much as they should. I, I think obviously. There's way too many regulations and things that you guys have to, I mean, to be able to do a DMT extended, we should be doing a DMT extended state trial right now. Like the, this, like uh, this is very important. And, and ter- as far as I can tell everything that all of these experiences, everything that we anyone listening right now should understand how important this, the value and, and the, uh, the amazing number of hoops that you guys have to jump through and, and uh, uh, trying to, even be able to do it, let alone get funding, is is ridiculous. Are, are you the last little thing? Are, are you a little bit hopeful about where things are? The tides turning a little bit. I so I mean, our group, admittedly, so you know, studying endogenous DMT um, or even ketamine, which is also an anesthetic, which is Mike will be talking to you about that. It's hard for me to comment directly on that, so Chris can can take it from there. But I'm I'm honestly optimistic about it. I feel like things are coming around. Um, but again, I don't have to jump through as many hurdles as somebody doing human research. So, no, I think I mean there's definitely reasons to be optimistic about the specific work uh, that's happening now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's also very interesting branches which which are appearing now because more research has been allowed. For example, this idea that people get more connected to nature and the implications that that may have on global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these these are important things, uh, not just the clinical personal things, but how this can maybe be helpful for conflict resolution. So you know the current period of you know crisis happening outside of the psychedelic space that can be positively influenced by these experiences. Mm. And I think you know there's a statement that sometimes gets thrown around, which is not only is it not unethical to do the work, but it is unethical to not do the work. Right. Uh, 
And I think there's 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 some truth to that when you have something that can be uh, powerful for aiding in these things, and helping people out. And and I'd just like to say that um, it seems that the tide is definitely turning, and a lot of funding is coming through, especially in support of um, using using psychedelics to treat different forms of mental disease or uh, to to treat other 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 types of disease. But it seems like there's um, a limitation of funding to just study some of the basic science, to study just the mechanism of action of of some of these compounds, or you know the uh, endogenous DMT research is, is funding is very difficult. Um, so I mean, obviously the research on treatment uh, of disease and uh, improvement of society is you know is is huge and it's really important and it's great and it's gotten gotten a lot of funding over the last several months even. Uh, in several years, uh, but there's still a, a really big need for basic science research and just understanding how these compounds are are interacting with our with our bodies. Uh, well, awesome! I have I have part three of three uh, coming up on on this podcast, so I need to let you guys go. But thank you so much, Nick Glinos. 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 Yep. Oh yeah. Sorry, Chris Timmerman. <laughs> thank you for joining me, and of course, John Dean. Thank you so much for being on. And I you. hope to have each of you guys on individually on the podcast someday in the future. So thank you so much for what you do, and uh, yeah, uh, good good luck on on uh, further success. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. All right, everybody, welcome to part three of three of the Psychedelic Neuroscience Symposium at the University of Michigan. Still feeling good, going strong. I, I could do three more of these, no problem. <laughs> Easy peasy. I'm going to go, uh, we're going to do this, you know the routine, guys. We're going to go around and have everyone introduce themselves and what they do, and then we're going to get into a nice, free-flowing, fun conversation about psychedelics and neuroscience. Um Katrine, why don't you introduce yourself first? Sure. So I'm Katrine Preiler. I'm working at the University of Zurich and at Yale University. And I'm mainly studying the neurobiology and um, neuropharmacology of psychedelic substances. Awesome. Mike? So my name is Michael Brito. Uh, I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in the UM Neuroscience Graduate Program. And I study measures of the level of consciousness in the context of uh, more atypical psychedelic drugs like ketamine and nitrous oxide. Hmm. Um, Emma? So my name's Emma Trammell, and I am a PhD student at the Neuroscience Graduate Program at University of Michigan. And I am studying the changes in brain activity during shamanic journeying. Oh, okay. Well, great. How do you ch study the the changes in brain activity? Do you, you just record uh, yeah, the Icaros and then put 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 some headphones on people when they're when they're uh, in a fMRI or what's going on? So we actually have shamanic practitioners, so people in from neo shamanism that have been trained, and they will listen to a drumming recording, and then we record EG during those journeys. So they journey for about 25 minutes. And then we kind of look at how that brain activity has changed in drumming compared to when they just have their eyes closed or they listen to classical music. Ah, so they're not even on anything. No, they, there's no pharmacologic intervention whatsoever. Do, uh, I mean, what, what are people's reviews of um, shamanic music when they're not on a mind altering substance? They into it? Um, they're actually having a pretty crazy experience. So they, we compared it to people that were 
ingesting ketamine, psilocybin, or MDMA, and they actually scored a lot higher in several domains like disembodiment and spiritual experience and complex imagery and things like that. So even without pharmacologic intervention, you can still have some of these crazy experiences. You just got to turn on, find the right Spotify uh, channel, yes. I guess, and you can you can just trip uh, trip your balls off on uh, on music. I guess right. that's what we've been doing for uh, throughout a lot of human history, probably. Yes, that's what they used to do. And I mean, you, you also have to chain for, you know, 15 years. So. Mm. Uh, wait. Oh, okay. So I'm misunderstanding what's happening. Training for 15 years. So So these are people that are... Wait, these are shamans in these in these tests? Yes, so they're trained shamanic practitioners. Oh, uh, I thought you were just playing like a random no. person off the street would come in, you get someone with a drum beating in their ear, and then they're tripping. I'm like, wow, that must be some music to make no, them. Okay, no, we I looked at those totally... people. They feel nothing. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right. That that makes a lot more sense. So, uh, so, so is it, I mean, they talk about Buddhists being able to get themselves into these what is it like beta wave states or within two minutes of meditation which would most people can never attain that is there kind of something similar going on with um with uh the brain kind of taking on a um habitual state in in the kind of reminders of of music that it's heard before um well at least I mean, what i can speak for the shamanic practitioners is they have changes in gamma activity whenever they're about at least we looked about 15 minutes in so mm. it could happen as early as maybe five minutes in and part of that is probably due to being in that habitual state so this drum is pretty repetitive and it's just it's a really intense drum beat that just goes for this full 25 minutes and ideally it's kind of tuning out some of that sensory information which kind of helps them slip into this altered state Huh. And then for at least what we found is that those shamanic practitioners have some changes in gamma activity specific to drumming. Um, all right. Well, geez, I feel like I'm just going to, sorry, the rest of you, I'm just going to talk to Emma for the, <laughs> for your entire, uh, um, I, so, so, okay. J now that I'm just getting clarity on what, what's going on, we had a slight misinterpretation. What about, so have these, did these shamans, originally have mind altering or or psychedelic experiences um through their training that has kind of pot potentially opened up something for them that that the music's like i i smoked dmt i put on some spongle in my headphones and then i listened to spongle later in my car and i'm like oh that's bringing back some some memories so some of them do some of them don't um there's a really widespread in terms of what people do for these journeys mm -hmm. so some people will use pharmacologic intervention maybe early on before you know early on in their training um, but there are other people that haven't touched any substances ever and they're still able to enter this state hmm. um katrine uh, what, what is lsd um neural computational research um so what we do is main what we do is mainly we try to understand how exactly LSD works in the brain mm. and um well what we do mostly is when we work with healthy participants we give them LSD or psilocybin or whatever substance we are currently investigating and um do brain imaging that maybe EEG like Emma just told us about um the, the main <coughs> sorry main work i'm doing is um fmri 
Mm-hmm. So we put them in the brain scanner and then see how their brain changes while they're under LSD or psilocybin. So it, I, I think a, a lot of people have probably seen the, here's your actual brain on drugs, and then they show the LSD brain and like, whoa, it's lit up. Look at all of this new neural activity and, and, and you know, presenting it to just uh, your average person, it would look like this is a superpower or something like that happening. But I imagine there's something a little more nuanced going on there, right? I completely agree. And there won't be one answer telling you, well, this is your brain on LSD or whatever substance. Um, it's a bit more complicated, especially with these types of substances, which you know vary between individuals and they vary from um, situation or from one experience to the other. Um, so I think we can, by now, we have a certain idea about some things that um, seem to be going on for most people and for um, a few psychedelic substances. Um, but it's not like there won't be one answer and there won't be one model. Um, so what I can say from the research that we've been seeing is that there seems to be something going on about how sensory information is being processed in the brain. So we see that the areas which are responsible for um, processing um, the inside um, sensory experience as well as you know the outside sensory experience, that they are very strongly connected with the rest of the brain. Um, and at the same time, we see that the areas which are um, responsible for integrating this information, they are loosely connected. Um, and I think that kind of makes sense, having you know all this sensory input, um, but connecting it differently um, than under placebo or normal waking states. So, Mike, I've, I've just been uh, recently experimenting with ketamine a bit for the first <laughs> time in my life. Love it. Lovely <laughs> substance. Wonderful experience. Big fan. What's going on in my, in my noggin when I do this stuff? Sure. Uh, so a lot of what I focus on are measures that assess the level of consciousness or try to approximate it. So one of the ongoing problems in areas of anesthesiology or neurology when uh, we're trying to assess maybe depth of anesthesia or you know how aware is someone in a coma, we, we really don't know how conscious they are in those conditions. Mm. And so all sorts of measures of conscious level have been proposed. Um, but right now, one of the more prominent uh, measures in the literature are measures that assess the diversity of signals in the brain. So typically when we're awake or we're having some sort of perceptual or phenomenological experience, like when we're awake or when we're dreaming, these measures of signal diversity are quite high. So that reflects that there's quite a lot of nuanced or variable activity going on in the brain. Uh, When we're unconscious, they're lower. And when we're on a psychedelic, like it doesn't matter if it's something like a classical serotonergic psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD or something that works on primarily the glutamate system like ketamine, those measures are enhanced. And so while this is great, we seem to have these measures that track quite well with the level of consciousness. We really don't know how they're actually being changed in the brain. And so one way that we can study that is to sort of perturb the amount of diversity going on in the brain uh, with something like a psychedelic or something like an anesthetic. And we can then look at things that are happening with the neurochemistry of the brain or with the dynamics of the brain. 
And drugs like ketamine and nitrous oxide are like the perfect models for that because rather than having to use multiple drugs, you can use just one drug. They possess both anesthetic and psychedelic properties. And so that's the approach that we're trying to take in the lab to see how these measures of conscious level are actually changed within the brain. Hmm. Um, so in, in terms of... What's the study that I'm trying to remember? So, so someone's in a coma, and you're uh, you're measuring brain activity, and you're talking to the person, and and um, you, it's my understanding that you can have them say, "Imagine a room," or "Imagine them playing basketball," or something, and and the difference between lighting up the spatial region and and the activity region is is like a, a way in which you can you can almost communicate with them and get them to say yes or no to some to picture your your childhood bedroom if it's a yes picture uh running a marathon if you're if you're um uh if it's a no is there um is that similar to the types of studies that you're trying to do in in a ketamine uh not quite so first of all we do these experiments in rats why because in rats we have this sort of unique advantage of being able to go invasively in the brain and measure what's going on neurochemically and how that's changing measures like the eg where we're recording the waves uh generated from the brain so the difference between something like the tennis study and these measures uh, based on the diversity of the brain's activity is that these measures of diversity are much more easily applied. So fMRI scans are typically quite expensive and uh, it's quite difficult to employ that in a widespread fashion. Whereas we could actually, in theory, you know, put maybe even just one electrode on a patient and use these measures of signal diversity to assess, you know, how deep are they in anesthesia? Um, are there some signs of wakefulness or awareness in someone that has a disorder of consciousness? Or in the case of psychedelics, you know, how much is the entropy or the diversity of their brain's activity being increased? And so they're similar, but quite different in some ways. So what happens when you give someone an anesthetic and, and they're, they're kind of knocked out and you're operating on them you're do is there are there parts of the brain responding to pain signals that people aren't consciously aware of yes so there is some indication so to back up here uh, typically with sensory processing uh, there's a hierarchy to it so in the case of vision uh, there are very basic visual centers that tell us things like do I see something at all or not? Uh, am I seeing this certain color? Is there an edge to this? Things like that, those very primary visual processes, those are preserved under anesthesia. What you don't get is the propagation of brain signals to higher cognitive areas that tell you things like, okay, I see an object with four legs. Is it a table or is it a bear or, you know, things like that. Mm. 
now I want a bear table. Um, (laughs) I guess what I'm, what what I am wondering is if there's a part of your brain that is experiencing the, the surgery, like you, you, that's feeling all of the pain and you're just not basically like it's, you're still feeling all the same pain in that experience. It's just, you can't say anything about it. So you're just trapped in this, this kind of comatose uh, temporary coma. Well, well, you're still experiencing this like horrific event. Oh yeah. So in the context of, (laughs) oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the context of (laughs) anesthesia, that's actually a very real problem. Uh, So typically when you're under anesthesia, they actually give you drugs that don't let you move. Uh, They block the neuromuscular junctions. And so you could absolutely be aware of what's going on. Uh, you can be feeling it, and there's no way that you can really communicate that to your anesthesiologist. <laughs> so uh, a good reason for why these measures matter. Right, um, of course. Yeah. That is horrifying. <laughs> Speaking of horrifying, let's talk about salvia. Um, I, so I, I've never done a full breakthrough salvia experience. The one time I smoked salvia, I didn't realize what it was. Uh, um, and I had like, it, you know, it's kind of like a microdose. Um, and, um, I, I mean, I actually have maybe the dumbest salvia story anyone could ever tell. Uh, here it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it's too late now. I have to tell it. So I was like, I put like salvia in a joint. I didn't know. It's just like, hey, this is a kind of like legal weed or something like that. Someone told me. Um, I was in Ireland. I was smoking a little bit, feeling like a little bit high, a little more intense than your average like marijuana high. And then it wearing off really quickly. And I'd have to smoke more. And then I, <laughs> and then I, uh, for the audience, she She's laughing uh, real hard at my uh, how how uh, little I knew um, at at the time. Yeah, I had no idea. And then I was at was at a comedy festival. (laughs) This is so fucking stupid. I I went. I sat in the back. And I was watching, <laughs> I was watching a show, and I want to know if you've ever heard anything reported like this from Selvia. But I, st- <laughs> why am I sharing this? I started farting, and then I just didn't stop. It was like, like thirty seconds in, I was like, "Wow, this is the longest fart that I've ever had in my life." And then a minute in, I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And I started laughing so hard that the comic on stage was like, "Hey, someone gets me in the back." Didn't realize that I was just laughing at my own <laughs> salvia parts. So, what is salvia like for the average person? A very different story than that, Emma? So, I can say that in the amount that I've run on, say, like, Arrowhead, and just talking to people I know have never heard of salvia farts specifically. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll keep you updated, and whenever we study salvia and rats, if they have any crazy experiences <laughs> like that, even though they can't tell me. Um, but salvia is just such a bizarre drug in that it has some overlap in DMT, but it's just primarily dysphoric. And so people, the common thing people report is they become inanimate objects. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I was going to take some salvia right now in this chair, I might become the chair and then I might feel like I'm going to be stuck as that chair forever. Yeah. Um, because another jarring thing about salvia is that whereas with a lot of, you know, traditional psychedelics, you remember that you took a drug. 
with salvia, you frequently don't. Mm -hmm. And so then it's kind of like you think this is the new reality and it's never going to end. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there have been crazy things about, you know, up became left. And, you know, I had a friend tell me that he didn't know how he was ever going to drive again because up had become left. And then there are other things where people say they're running on the pages of a book and then that book slammed and crushed them and then they didn't exist anymore. So there's a really wide range in things that can happen. Um, predominantly negative, and a lot of people don't normally do salvia twice. Yeah. Um, although, if the worst thing that happened is that you farted <laughs> for a minute straight, then maybe you wouldn't. You wouldn't I, mind so trying I, I again. Had, I had the best salvia trip anyone's ever had. Basically, you, you had the best trip that I've heard from anybody before. Um, <laughs> if I would have smoked more salvia, I would have been the fart. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it is. It's amazing because in my uh, so I, I had a big kind of uh, psychedelic comedy show tour that I did. I did like 111 cities. I did it many times outside that tour as well. And I've had probably 10 times after a show, uh, yeah, which really isn't that many considering like, you know, the number of people each show. How many, but still, it struck me as really bizarre that 10 people had this very similar experience that was, you know, they'd come up, ask me if I've done salvia. I'm like, no, because no one has any good stories about salvia. It just sounds like a nightmare. And, uh, and they're like, oh man, I was a toy in the front of a toy store. And there's like an alien child, like picking me out. And, um, and, I, I didn't know if I was going to be like picked by the, or bought by this alien or whatever. And I heard that like exact same, you know, different parts of the country, everything else from, and maybe they read it on Arrow and it, and it, and it, and it changed their uh, interpretations of a trip. But, um, you know, very convinced that that's exactly what they, what they saw. Have you heard that one? I haven't heard that one, but it, it brings up a really interesting point that I was talking to somebody about where, you know, the psychedelic experience can vary a lot. I mean, it's modulated by what kind of drug you take, but there's also a lot of overlap in what people report. And part of that makes you wonder, you know, we have a lot of archetypes in terms of just what we expect. And, you know, like I can, I've read multiple reports of like the book experience that I cited earlier. Like, you know, a lot of people turn into objects. And so there is a consistency that happens depending on the drug you take. You know, that's, you'll talk to more than one person when they've taken DMT that's seen a reptilian god. It's not going to just be one person that says that. And so it makes me wonder why, despite, you know, the diversity that you can have an experience, you still do have some specific experiences that a lot of people seem to have. And I don't think, I think it'd be really difficult to study to look at you know, why do certain people have some experiences versus others, at least on a brain activity level? I'm sure that there are things like previous like religious affiliations and life experiences that affect that and what you've read on Arrowhead. But um, that's something that I've always thought is interesting. I've never personally read anything about being a toy and getting picked out by an alien child, although that does sound like a slightly jarring experience. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you don't know you're on a drug. I, I mean, I've I've done... DMT a uh, 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 great number of times and and I've lost myself momentarily within that space but that's like oh I almost have to intentionally do that I almost have to intentionally like let go and kind of visualizing myself 
untethering from this reality because it seems like there's just a very natural reaction to be like no i'm on a couch right now i smoked a drug that's why i'm experiencing this so so commonly people just don't experience that no they don't and so you know not only is it while they're on the drug that they forget but then whenever the effects of salvia have passed people then are very they, they question a lot of, are they back in reality? Is this reality? Is it over? You know, like there are then some questions of, you know, what's real and what's not, which is also, you know, one of the reasons that people aren't the biggest fans, because who wants to take something that's going to make you then question every aspect that you're having moving forward mm. um, versus being, you know, seeing into God's eye and having some sort of enlightening experience. Yeah, the God's eye scares me too a yeah. little bit. So I mean, it's yeah. all sometimes. I, I heard a I heard a story of uh, of someone. I think on this podcast, a researcher years ago was was talking about hearing a report of someone doing salvia, and then they were a peep, like the like the Easter candy, uh, marshmallow peep, on the side of a road, and then uh, some critter finally came by and eat ate them and it was just this sense of relief that they had like fulfilled their destiny in life which was to be a peep being eaten by by some critter so they had a positive experience of, of being a peep whereas i've had plenty of experiences on dmt where i'm like um, i'm looking at like a some um spirit woman that controls the universe and that's troubling to me. Like most people are like, yay, I saw God. I'm like, did I see God? That's like, I don't, you know, it, it, uh, it, either, either way, it's a, it's such a jarring experience to the MT and the Salvia experience. Um, it, how, how does it, it, what is the, what is the mechanism that is like letting people know that they're on a drug? Do, do you have any way of isolating? Is that like some prefrontal cortex stuff or, like, because when you're when you're in a dream state, you don't necessarily know that you're dreaming. You know, I don't know. I I can't think off the top of my head. Maybe you know, Katrina or maybe Michael, you can think of something. But I don't think we really identified a region that lets you know what's real and what's not. Mm. Um, you know, that brings into, you know, like disorders like like psychosis, where mm. you have difficulty understanding like what's really there and what's not too. You know, if we understood that better, we'd probably have a better understanding of psychosis, but we don't. The only thing I can think of is that if you were going to give a bunch of people salvia or DMT and then do subjective reports of did you know that you were did you know that you took a drug or not? And then see if there's any difference in brain activity. But given the complexity of the brain and all of the regions that are involved and the variability, I highly doubt it'd be something straightforward as one single region. It'd probably be, you know, a bunch of different regions integrated together. Hmm. But good idea for a study. Um, yeah, I. Well, it, it seems to be the case that even when we're like, the, the amygdala does this, there's the whole brain's uh, working in conjunction with things. Uh, Katrine, what, uh, how much LSD are, are you giving people in, in the studies that you're, you're doing? So the study we've been doing, we've been giving them um, a hundred microgram. Um, so this is so that's like a run-of-the-mill kind of uh, low, like most people on the street doing it recreationally. That would be like a hit. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's a hit. Um, so we're not talking about a microdose. We're not talking about a super high dose because, um, of course, the, these people are in a study. So they need to go in a scanner um, in our study actually twice. Um, they need to do some testing in between. Um, so it's not, you know, your regular trip where you're with friends and sitting down, but it's, it's an actual scientific study. So um, we need people to be able to complete the task that we're doing with them. Uh, so so you got a 12 hour LSD trip and then you just got like shit to do like you're you're just like giving them homework and, and stuff the whole time absolutely um so I mean you know there are of course there there are breaks where you know people can just relax and um we're located in a really really nice location so we can actually take people for a walk in you know a safe environment and and sit down and have you know just have them watch the lake and be in nature so all of that is possible as well but um well but we're doing science right so um we yeah, need to do there. tests with them yeah. um to and of course we try uh we well we make sure that they have the best experience possible um within the scientific environment hmm. um you, you, you don't ever just try to freak them out intentionally like we want to study why people freak out and get paranoid so like play some tricks on them and Make them feel like they're in the Truman Show or, or something. Maybe maybe throw some spiders on them in the middle of the trip. Nothing like that. Well, I mean, we, we do need IRB approval. So <laughs> um, even though that might actually be interesting to to find out, you know, because uh, so I think that actually is an issue in um, psychedelic research because all this research, so the researchers and the environment, everyone is um, very much trying to create the best experience possible. So we have very little data on what actually is happening when people are having um, a, a bad trip mm-hmm. um, because we, we, we can't induce that and, and honestly we shouldn't, right? Uh, but there's also no ethical committee that would give us approval for this. Um, so all the, all the data we know is biased for, you know, positive experiences. Hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to sign up for. Come in and have a bad trip. We're going to induce a, a bad trip. Your parents are going to be there. <laughs> we're 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 gonna we're gonna uh, point out your insecurities to you, and then make you realize that they're even worse than you thought they were, and and just really have a have a full on uh, free. I, 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 I mean, I do one of the things that I personally, as someone who enjoys psychedelics, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and it's just my absolute, I don't mind the difficult trip of like exploring bad childhood memories or, you know, uh, uh, realizing this like humbling thing about yourself or, or what have you. Those are all, I always find those really productive insights, but paranoia i have never been able to reframe into any kind of a positive um light at all and what is it with and it's one of the reasons why i can i barely ever um smoke weed just because one out of five times that i do it it leads to paranoia um usually it doesn't happen too much with psychedelics but it is just really uh it really just kind of ruins all all of any of the usual personal growth that I get out of an experience is there anything in your where the even outside of psychedelics do we know what 
paranoia looks like in the brain just like what regions are at work what what exactly is paranoia why why is it constructing you know even people not on site there's plenty of like um conspiracy theorists out there what 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 is it about them that makes the them be hyper vigilant hyper paranoid blaming others for their own um possible shortcomings that sort of thing anyone want to take a whack at it personally i feel like that's a bit Working in rats, that's a bit outside of my domain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, it's on you guys. No pressure. You just got have to solve the greatest mystery I've ever come across. I'll take a stab at it, but sure. I'm not going to claim that it's right. Uh, that's, I'm just, it's wild speculation. Just a, just a wild speculation just based on you know what we know. Like if, if you have extreme paranoia, it's really because you're not thinking through things logically. You're not, you know, you're not really thinking of the situation about what it is. And so I would imagine that it's probably like frontal regions. So like, like the prefrontal cortex is probably impaired whenever you're talking about paranoia, just at least in the realm of you're not thinking through the most realistic possibility. However, I'm sure that there are a lot of other regions involved that are perpetuating like the fear and like the distrust, you know, a huge part of like paranoia usually is like, at least in like, you know, think about paranoid schizophrenia, it's frequently having like a distrust of other people. And so that's probably like a whole different other realm. But at least with the logic part, that's probably more of that prefrontal cortex area. Hmm. But again, I really don't want to be held accountable for that being correct. And so I don't want people coming at me if they have oh, studied yeah. it or You're anything get like so that. So many emails, the subject matter, we're coming at you. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> um, uh, so what, what, um, um, oh, I want to know uh, um, about nitrous yes. a little bit. I did nitrous once. That's it. Only done it once. Most people are surprised to hear that. They're like, how have you not done nitrous more um, for for the number of things that I'm into? Uh, nitrous one time. It was in a float tank. I didn't do much because I was, I'd never done nitrous. I didn't want to like pass out or something. Is that a thing, by the way? Can you pass out from like... You you get a nitrous balloon at a con uh, at, at a concert and and how I've heard of people like um, fainting. Absolutely. So in medical settings where we typically administer it, like uh, in a dentist's office, it's always mixed with a certain concentration of oxygen. Uh, generally speaking, when you get into the range of seventy percent nitrous, thirty percent oxygen. That's the upper limit there that you want to go. Uh, any less oxygen than that, and you run risk of hypoxia. It also is an anesthetic, so that right. could contribute so as well. So, as a scientist, you yeah. wouldn't recommend people doing nitrous in a float tank, probably. Um, no, <laughs> I, I can't say that I would recommend that. Um, yeah, the 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 danger, at least with um, uh, people, people know better than to follow uh, <laughs> my my lead on things. So we don't need to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but nitrous <laughs> is uh, it's a bizarre drug. It's very similar to ketamine. Yeah. Uh, so both of those drugs are what we call NMDA antagonists. Uh, the NMDA receptor is a glutamate receptor, so it's involved mm -hmm. in excitatory signaling in the brain. And while most anesthetics act on what's called GABA receptors, which are, in general, inhibitory uh, neurotransmitters in the brain. Is that 
what alcohol is doing too? Yes, yes. Okay. It acts on the GABA receptor as well. So that's how most anesthetics work. Mm-hmm. Um, ketamine and nitrous do not fit that framework. They actually work in the opposite direction in a lot of ways. Uh, so if we look at someone under you know, an anesthetic such as propofol that acts on GABA, we'll see that the level of neural activity is depressed. Uh, whereas under the case of nitrous and ketamine, people can look very anesthetized and they'll have all sorts of high-frequency oscillations in their cortex. They may report these bizarre psychedelic dreams when they emerge from anesthesia. Uh, almost everything that a GABAergic drug uh, or a typical anesthetic does, nitrous and ketamine do the opposite of. Mm. And yet somehow they still reach the same endpoint. And yet they have these very unique properties at sub-anesthetic doses where they can be quite psychedelic. Hmm. And nitrous, that's, isn't that very, say you were going to get a balloon at a concert or something, mm-hmm. that would be something that's very short acting, right? Like just a couple minutes or something? Yes. I mean, even in the case of uh, medically administered nitrous, uh, because it is a gas, uh, it can diffuse fairly quickly. Mm. Um, it doesn't even have to go through like your liver to metabolize. And so the onset and the emergence from those sorts of anesthesia, at least in the case of nitrous, is usually pretty rapid. Have you heard, um, I think, I hope I'm remembering this right. I, I believe Oliver Sacks in his um, book, The Mind's Eye, gave an account of nitrous. It was like actually, the, I think, the last drug he ever did. I think it was that his brother was a dentist or something like that. And he snuck in and put on a mask and just turned it up and then like came to like eight hours later with the mask still on and said he had seen like all these great wars through all of all of history and it was just like the most intense thing he had ever gone through is that is that something that can actually happen or that that or doesn't nitrous metabolize much faster than that or can you kind of stay under you can stay under absolutely as long as the administration is continuous and you're Mm -hmm. constantly getting gas in your lungs and it's diffusing to your brain um yeah you can be held under anesthesia or you know in the case of lower doses of nitrous a psychedelic state for quite a long time oh i did nitrous one other time just remembered the (laughs) dentist uh dentist gave me um uh nitrous um for a podcast there's a dentist that has a podcast where he gives uh, comedians <laughs> nitrous and then cleans their teeth um, <laughs> and and it was a really relaxing chill experience it wasn't there was no psychedelic effect whatsoever um i felt very much in control and being able to report what i was feeling whereas like ketamine i do ketamine and i i feel like i'm uh like my tongue is very like thick and I, I have I sound like I'm drunk or slurring mm-hmm. or something like that on ketamine. Yeah. So, I mean, in the case of nitrous, it really depends on what sort of concentration you're receiving. Oftentimes in dentist's office, you know, these are for pretty short surgical procedures, removing a wisdom tooth or something, they really don't have to push the concentration very high. Um, Once you get in that 60 to 70 percent range, uh, or in the case of recreational use that people often uh, do at festivals, where it's 100 percent nitrous, uh, that's where some of the more psychedelic properties of the drugs start to emerge. Um, As far as how 
the dose response curve of ketamine would compare to nitrous. Um, I'm not sure that's really been established. I will say, however, that ketamine seems to not be only a more reliable anesthetic drug, but it also seems to be a more potent psychedelic drug. Hmm. Um, all right. So I haven't I haven't asked this question the entire. This is uh, three uh, three podcasts in a row with three different um, people or three part podcasts. So anyway, this is you guys are seven, eight, and nine, and I haven't asked this question. I know people are gonna kill me if I don't ask you guys this question. People are gonna hear this. They're gonna be like, "Wow, how in the hell do you get to study psychedelics? What a cool thing to do!" Uh, can you can you guys give like a little uh, as we um, wrap up, give a, a little bit of your background, how you maybe got interested in this, the the path that you took, maybe what other people can do that are interested in following a similar path. Anyone can start. Um. So actually, I got to do this um, by by coincidence, I think. So I started doing my PhD in addiction research, and I was interested in well, what what um, the neurochemistry of our brain really. And um, so I started doing addiction research um, with the goal of also learning, you know, what what the neurochemistry and neuropharmacology of our brain is doing to make us well behave what we what we well, the way we behave and and think what we think and then i realized that while this research is incredibly important to help people who suffer from addiction it is not particularly useful to tell us how exactly the brain works and so i kind of stumbled over this research with psychedelics where we actually acutely administered the substances and uh, realized well this is actually the window in the brain that i was looking for and after I finished my PhD, I started working in psychedelic research as a postdoc then, and um, well, continue doing that until now. Mm, cool. Well, give me the real story after we finish recording. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I actually had a, a really similar uh, trajectory to Katrine. Uh, I also studied addiction in my undergraduate studies, and for a while thereafter, um, and. While I was quite interested in psychedelics in those years and, and really would love to do that sort of research, uh, I didn't think it was a realistic possibility. Um, and sort of as a full circle moment, the first psychedelic researcher that I actually spoke to was Katrine at uh, a conference known as Society for Neuroscience. And so at that moment, it um, dawned on me that that might be a realistic thing, but still I sort of uh, put it in my back pocket because... In the U.S., uh, things aren't quite as permissive with respect to psychedelic research. So when I came to UM to interview for my Ph.D. program, I still had the intention of doing addiction research. And uh, by fate, I ended up sitting down at a recruitment dinner and having uh, a beer with a Hungarian scientist that I did not know. And he turned out to be a member of the uh, Center for Consciousness Science. And uh, from there, I started hearing about how there was all this wonderful ketamine and nitrous oxide work happening. And it was just from, from then on, I uh, knew that that was what I was going to do. Hmm. Emma, the origin story of Emma. So my origin story actually dates back to when I was in high school. And so whenever I was taking high school psychology, we were learning about schizophrenia and hmm. I had, my teacher said, imagine that you had a 
experience that involved all five senses. And then imagine somebody tells you that that never happened. They said, that's what it's like to have schizophrenia. And that just blew my mind as the 17-year-old that I was. And that made me really start to wonder about these altered states of consciousness where your reality is not the shared reality of everyone else. And that, you know, then I was like, oh, well, you can, you know, not just with schizophrenia, but also psychedelic substances can also induce these states. And I started reading about all these crazy experiences that people can have. But like Michael, I didn't think that that was anything I could study. During my undergrad, I was told, forget about it. Nobody takes it seriously. Until in 2016, I just kind of networked with the right people and I ended up at a conference here. And it was an altered states of consciousness conference. And then I was like, oh, There are people here that like consciousness. There are people here that are interested in psychedelic research. And so when it was time for me to apply to graduate school, I was like, this is this is where my people are. This is where like my research interest can be accepted. And so since then, and just kind of these fortunate events, that's how I ended up here. Pretty similar to Michael. So. So what do you uh, what do you tell someone uh, listening who is just really interested in um, looking into the possibility of of psychedelic research? I mean, this is. This is certainly the the best the best time since uh, uh, since the '60s and the scheduling uh, programs and everything to to get involved in this in this research. But I imagine there's still pretty um, limited uh, entry points to, um, to. Is there like if someone if people are taking generals or so is is psychology is like becoming a therapist a really a good way with the expansion of the all of the MDMA assisted and psilocybin assisted therapy is, is a neuroscience background um, going to be really useful these days. What, what are the, I, I imagine like an American history degree isn't going to translate into getting into psychedelic research. What should people do? Uh, you would be surprised actually. I think that's one of the most wonderful aspects about researching uh, issues related to consciousness, such as psychedelics, Uh, whether you are a neuroscientist or a biomedical engineer or even a philosopher, there are plenty of relevant questions that you can can address through through these questions of consciousness and psychedelics. And so not only is it the best time to be getting into this sort of research, but one of the unique advantages of it is that doesn't matter much who you are there's always an application to the science of consciousness all right well if that, that's mike I, I guess you nailed it uh, katrina and emma have, have uh like he did it so uh well you guys were awesome thank you so much for sharing all of the research that you do and thank you for what you do and being these brave new pioneers of psychedelic research and consciousness explorers. That is super awesome. It's really nice to meet all of you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. A podcast network.